Shut up. It's daddy, you shithead. Where's my bourbon? Heineken? Fuck that shit. Pops Blue Ribbon. So let's just say I'm driving this buggy. And if you fix your attitude, you can ride along with me. Everybody, welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am Patrick Rapole. I am Jim Laskowski, candy-colored clown. That's right. Um, I'm very excited for this episode because uh, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite directors. And with us to accompany us on this incredible journey down the Lost Highway, we have a special guest live in studio, Mr. Nat Almorell. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jim and Patrick. Yes. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for but being wait, here. But wait! But wait! We what? have yet another guest! We do? We have another honored guest. This person talking to us over the internet. Uh, of course, you know him from the Film Jive podcast. Uh, John Zach, Cassavetes episode? The John Cassavetes episode. You know, you know him from our <laughs> podcast very recently. <laughs> Zach Batanti. How are you doing, Zach? I'm doing really well. Thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure to be back again. Yeah? Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> We're happy to have you. Now, now would yeah. that be the Lost Information Superhighway? Yes. Mm-hmm. Ah. Nice. Very good. Now, Nat, since you're, uh, I have you're a newbie. <laughs> oh, now this will be the bad David Lynch puns episode. Oh, well, I'm all for that. You know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, since you're the newbie to the show... Uh, you write for Frothy Girls? Frothy Girls com? with a Z, all one word, dot com, theflickcast.com. I have a series of articles on Orson Welles, on where the Frothy Lockout. Girls isn't porn, right? <laughs> that depends on what you mean by porn. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Some people get aroused by... Pop culture porn? Yeah. Some people get aroused by uh, culture yeah. uh, culture criticism. I first encountered you through the Row 3 Cinecast message board, and uh, we uh, met up uh, at the Chicago Critics Film Festival, which was really cool. Yes, we did. I uh, yeah. tracked you down. You um, said, I recognize your voice, and I was creeped out, <laughs> as I normally am. Set a trap for you. Yes. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Had a good time. Very much so. Uh, yeah. Um, not that I can think of. There's really no uh, in-house business other than our bonus episodes. Oh, that's right. I recorded a commentary track for Friday the 13th with my mother. Um, as a special Mother's Day episode. Mother, and, she's like no other. And honestly, as a Mother's Day gift, because uh, I did not get her a gift. I'm poor right oh. now. So I'll get her a gift later. I'll do a makeup gift. But anyway. Talking I'm with actually, you is always a gift. I'm really happy with how that turned out. And that's because I, I, had to, I recorded it and had to go back and listen to it. It was like one of the first episodes uh, that I've actually listened to. And I am happy about it. So if you own Friday the 13th, um, why wouldn't you? Good shit. Good podcast. Uh, good movie. Um, you know, uh, go ahead, download that commentary track. Listen to me explain slasher films to my 55-year-old mother, who has only seen two horror movies in her life, mm-hmm. the last one being in 1972. I was trying to think of a movie I would do with my mom, and the only one that I know we both equally love is Boogie Nights. Oh, and she could And she could tell, like, so many stories from that era. Yeah. So I've, I've been interested in maybe thinking about... Uh, your mom is your mom is Nina. He- what's what's her name? She's not Nina Hartley. <laughs> she can tell a lot of stories. I'll yeah, my dad shot himself because you know mm-hmm. of uh, catching my mom with many men. So that's that's why we call you Little Jim. Yes. <laughs> There's a dick with what is he, that he messes up the line, but he kept it in there anyway. There's a 
my wife has a, a dick in, an ass in her dick or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's good, so funny. Good one. Yeah. Sort of the same thing he did with uh, in Punch Drunk Love when he said, I'm feeling very food. Or, yeah. I'm very food or whatever. <laughs> right. Instead of good. Um, all right. Uh, do we have anything else to no. discuss? Oh, you know what I'd like to say? Uh, give us a review on iTunes. Oh, cool. That is a really good way for people. iTunes has like a fucked up stupid algorithm or whatever. And you have to constantly be getting new reviews. Um, like, uh, that's how, you know, our thing will be bumped up on the, uh, you know, it'll be bumped up on suggestions and stuff like that. And So uh, if you enjoyed the show, uh, review us on iTunes. That'd be a free way to really help us. Yeah. Try not to give us a one-star review like one person did. But hopefully you like the show. That's why you're listening. Yeah. Five stars. Yeah. All the way. Yeah. And I don't know if I ever brought this up recently, but all of our episodes are back in the feed. I don't think I ever mentioned that in the show because for a while there you can only get the last fifty episodes. Oh, they're all back. Yes. Yeah, we ponied up. They were they're held hostage. So you can go all the way back and listen to me bitch about uh, Rob Zombie. Yeah, and you can hear us when we were shitty. Yeah, (laughs) we have our moments. Let's move on. I think we're excited. Yes. Yes. What we watched this week? We watched a movie. We watched a movie or TV show. Ask the guests to go first. Ooh, but which well, who's it gonna be? Yeah. Who's it gonna be? I think it's gonna be Nat. Okay, he's, he's new. So, well, do you want to do the ones that uh, we were talking about doing together, or do you want me to just do like a separate list? Before? Um, I'll do something separate since uh, you know, I mean, obviously you can jump in on the conversation for stories we tell when I bring it up. Okay, well, I have a couple of them. Uh, the first is Lal, which um, is making the rounds on Netflix. My girlfriend. How do you spell that? Lol. Lol. Okay. As in laughing out loud mm. but uh, my my fiance has a predilection for very bad romance films and so we've nice. been covering yeah we've been covering the uh, showcase on netflix from like one for the money uh chalet girl all this crap this um this lol is probably the worst film i have seen this year and i have seen both the host and stand-up guys does it have miley cyrus in it yes it does wow. and she looks like a freak now <laughs> Uh, but also a tie into David Lynch, I guess, and Mulholland Drive. But uh, uh, this this is apparently a remake um, of a French film, and it takes place in a high school. Miley Cyrus is apparently a very sexually active high schooler, um, and I think there's the director um, of this one. It was also the director of the uh, the previous film, I believe, also named Lal, and she's a French woman. And I think some of the culture. Uh, cultural references or uh, norms are somewhat lost in translation because it opens with Miley Cyrus coming home and she's in the bathroom. Her mother is taking a bath with uh, her very young sister and Miley Cyrus drifts down and her mother says, is that a Brazilian wax? 
Oh. <laughs> so apparently, yeah, it's a family that's very comfortable naked together. And uh, there's like a later scene where the two of them are like in bed together. They're not naked. Um, but it's kind of like a weird spooning position. And just very nasty. But um, it kind of follows all the general tropes. Uh, Miley Cyrus thinks that her boyfriend's cheating on her. There's a stupid mix-up. It's just imbecilic. Um, the dialogue is pretty idiotic. The performances are very bad. It's just disconcerting, uncomfortable, and uh, definitely would uh, avoid that one. Not even good to make fun of, unfortunately. Um, but uh, outside of that... Uh, also- Anything in the theaters recently? Um, outside of The Great Gatsby, um, planning oh. on seeing, yeah. Did what? anyone else see that? No, I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I think Zach, you, you, you're looking for, have you seen it? Yeah, I, I did see it. Oh, uh-huh. I bet you're a fan cause you like, you actually, I, you're a fan loved, of the, Gatsby. I loved it. Oh, opposed boy. to every other person on the planet. <laughs> well, you liked Australia and Moulin Rouge. I love, yeah. I loved all of Baz Luhrmann movies. Wow. Actually, I will say it does seem to be very faithful to uh, uh, Fitzgerald's book. Like, uh, he really does capture a lot of the emotions of the characters, and it's pretty true to them. And the performances, I think, outside of Tobey Maguire, who's doing Tobey Maguire, like that sort of, you know, what kind of tranquilizer is he on? The wide-eyed. Uh, of course. But, um, yeah, it. you can kind of separate... The meat of the story, which is pretty decent and pretty faithful, from I think the uh, Baz Lermanisms, like having them driving down um, the road and coming up to a car that's blasting Jay Z. <laughs> does it really? Uh, does it really? Of emphasize the excess. Of the <laughs> does stuff like that. I. Well, why do you think Baz? Why can't Baz Lerman just like? I don't know. Well, I, I know the big it. thing with Jay Z was Jay Z's a producer on the film, yeah. so I think because oh, wow. actually I feel like all of the other contemporary music is integrated fairly well it's the two or three of the jay-z songs that are the most noticeable uh as being problematic and i feel like he kind of was hurt by the fact that jay-z was so heavily involved i don't know it just felt like the soundtrack was somewhat disassociated entirely from the film at least for me um like even when they introduce gatsby and they have like the climax of rhapsody in blue it feels like a little forest and a little, well, this is the only thing you're going to know from the 1920s, so we're going to put it out there. Hmm. It's uh, Buzz uh, Lerman's technique is a little I, I forced, think the guy right? just That's what he like. He likes to force things? Like Yeah, I think the guy just is looking for any sort of story, and from that it's like a jumping point to do the Buzz Lerman big well, show. I, that's, I just wish Buzz, I wish Buzz Lerman would just make a movie like, uh, like a remake of That's Entertainment, or the, uh, or, um, or a porno. No, no, no. Well, it's, uh, what was that? There was but, a... but Rob Marshall and Bill Condon do that every yeah. two or three yeah. times anyway. You know, they, they're essentially just ripping Bob Fosse right from the grave. The thing at least I admire about Boz Lerman is that his aesthetic is very much his own. Well, and it is, I just but feel it's like, a I feel like there's things about his films that I guess critics just don't, find as amusing as maybe I do. I mean, I think he uses uh, screen space in a very interesting way. Uh, I love how he transitions from scene to scenes. I think he layers images incredibly well on top of each other. There's an incredible moment uh, earlier in the film where you kind of see that apartment building with all of those different windows and what's going on. And I, I mean, yeah. that's not something that's probably necessary. It's indulgent, but... <laughs> It's very entertaining well, and yeah. beautiful. It's a neat little like Jacques Tati touch. Yeah, there. 
Yeah, I've but I don't just... feel like in any of the reviews that I'm reading that people are bringing up those things. They're instead getting stuck on how is it faithful to the book. Mm-hmm. I know, just I, I, he's one of those guys music. that is like I don't know sub or style over substance for me, and like his his visuals are just really dizzying for me for some reason. Like. I remember the first 20 minutes of Romeo and Juliet. I just wanted to put a gun in my mouth. Like, I just couldn't... I don't know why he's... Were you biting almost... your thumb at the movie, but you are not biting the thumb at you, sir? <laughs> but, like, his music video approach to things, you know, he, he, he tends to, like, you know, cut really quickly with everything, and he doesn't let shots linger. I mean, there's certainly a rhythm to his style, but it just doesn't mesh with me. Well, I think... I think... There are a lot of criticisms about style over substance for this film, but I think the substance is there and the style is there. They just don't quite, I guess, coalesce or don't quite come together. That's how I felt about Moulin Rouge. The second people, the second they heard uh, that uh, a 3D great fucking Great Gatsby, a fucking 3D (laughs) version of Great Gatsby by Boz fucking Lerman was going to come out. The critics had knives out for the movie already. Like, you know, I haven't seen the film. I don't have a tremendous love for Great Gatsby, but it's not a, it's not necessarily uh, like, like uh, my favorite Baz Luhrmann movie is probably Romeo. I always say plus Juliet. I know it's Romeo and Juliet, but this, that's, this, is, this is the one time where I, I go ahead and I just use the stupid marketing title. Well, that's that's another thing, too. Because like. I, I, I think that movie is really good because it just... It's like oh, like it's Boz Lerman. It's and it, Boz Lerman's sort of energy and people getting caught up in just getting caught up in themselves and everything. Like I think that actually translates to the Great Gatsby is a very subtle and the whole appeal of the book of Great Gatsby is the way it's written. It's the prose. It's yeah. it's Fitzgerald's. It's the same way with uh, like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Like no Fear and Loathing Las Vegas movie is necessarily going to be good because. The whole point of *Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas* is the way Hunter S. Thompson writes. It's not. Right. It's not. It's not that it's like a grand story, and I, I don't think *Great Gatsby* is necessarily an amazing story. So it, it's never really good for adaptation to begin with. Well, but, it's also one of those books that you're forced to read, so you immediately dislike it. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I'd read it in high school. I don't well, know. It was all right. I think there are a lot of people who really uh, who they are attacking this film because they like the f- book and they want to defend it for they want to defend its honor for whatever misguided yeah. reason. <laughs> the only question I have about the movie is: Is Carrie Mulligan as beautiful as always? <laughs> I thought you were going to say naked, and I'd say you have to go back to shame for oh, that. Well, of but um, I, she, I, th- I actually think that is a really inspired casting choice. Oh and, yeah, um, yeah, if she. He nails the superficiality of uh, of Daisy, and she does as well. So. I figured I'd ask a superficial question, since he's a superficial director. <laughs> she is very cute. <laughs> um, and then we all took a drink, and that was our <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Pause. I, I I do have uh, <laughs> one one more quick one. I did rewatch American Splendor, which is yes! one of my favorite movies, at least until Joyce Brabner shows up. But. Uh, <laughs> Uh, although I think Hope Davis does a very good performance of that. She's kind of like the only one who's her own character in that yeah. film, like somewhat separate from the real person. And it's interesting because like in a lot of biopics, you get the standard criticism of the actors who are just doing impersonations of the real life characters. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because it integrates the real life characters in that. So you can see like how accurate or I mean, you can really gauge 
how, how much of a distance or difference there is between the performances. And to an sure. extent, just putting the real Harvey Picard in there is saying, yeah. we're yes. not trying to trick you with a Harvey Picard impression. It's saying it doesn't matter how good its impression mm-hmm. of Harvey Picard is. Oh, yeah. I think it's very aware of that, too, because like when you have Judah Freelander uh, come on as Toby Radloff, He's so out there. You're like, this can't possibly, this is such an effective performance. And then immediately afterwards, they bring on the real guy. For me, I really like uh, Hope Davis. Like, I, when Hope Davis's character shows up, like, that to me is when the movie really takes, is really as, that's my favorite Yeah, the part relationship the between the two of them is really yeah. good. Yeah. Because it's yeah. a really interesting romance, and it's the kind of romance you never see yeah, in movies. It's, yeah, it's like a very toxic romance. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then. I, I think it's functional. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I think. Just because two people are cynical, like, just sort of assholes to each other. Like, some people, that's what they need. It's just another person to sort of... Like, I, I don't think it's... You know, he's, you know... Uh, curmudgeon. With her. Like, yeah, he's a curmudgeon, and she's very set in her way. Like, that to me is what's really captivating about that movie, is it shows a very functional relationship, but, but in it's a not context... Me- between dysfunctional people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I like about that movie. Me too. Yeah. Zach, what's on your mind right now? Oh, not a lot. I was just American <laughs> Splendor. <laughs> Revenge of the nerds. Are you asking him what he watched this week? Is that what you're trying to do? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I wasn't sure. Um, so the last thing that I saw that wasn't a David Lynch movie, um, I actually went to... This is interesting because you're just talking about American Splendor, which takes place in Cleveland, which is where I live. Um, and I just went to the Museum of Kem- Contemporary Art uh, a couple days ago to see this sort of short film art installation called the Paradise Institute, which is this, I think, roughly 13-minute film that uh, is showcased inside this tiny plywood structure. Um, it's plywood on the in- outside, but inside there is a movie theater which seats 17 people, and it has headphones hanging off of hooks on the back of the chairs. And then in front of the chairs, there's this sort of glass pane, and on the other side of the glass, there's a miniature replica of an old vintage movie theater with dozens of miniature seats and balconies. Um, and then in the miniature theater, um, there is the movie screen, which is sized to appropriately fit the, the smaller theater. But because it's designed in such a way where things kind of it's designed in a way so that when you're sitting in your regular size seats you just feel like you're sitting in the back of the theater so this somehow it creates the illusion that you're that that's that size screen is appropriate it's just as big as any other movie theater screen would be um so the it starts and you put your headphones on and things go black and right from the beginning there is just this um incredible directional sound that you start hearing um, sounds of like fellow audience members. So it's like people walking by you and sitting down in their seats. You hear the seats squeaking, people talking, eating popcorn, everything that you would normally hear like in a packed movie theater. And this sound is incredible. Like it is so rich in detail and depth and direction that like you can't help yourself but let it trick you into thinking that like somebody is behind you so you like have to turn around even though there's a wall right in your face um and i went with actually with another person in certain moments i wasn't sure if she was talking to me or what was going on it's very disorienting there was a moment where she was like feeling the walls behind her because i don't know what (laughs) she thought was going on but so eventually the film starts playing and the film itself is not it's not 
that interesting. It's fairly simple. It, I mean, it's told in a very abstract way. It has to do with a nurse and a patient that is kind of being held prisoner in some kind of hospital that I think is supposed to juxtapose with you kind of feeling like a prisoner in this small little structure. Um, but it it's really interesting how it kind of turns the movie going experience on its head. It's, it's, it's very sensory. Um, and like over the course of your, you're hearing the film's audio, but you're still hearing the people around you. At one point there's like, you hear a woman talking about leaving a burner on at home and needing to leave because she can't stop obsessing over it. Um, which I actually thought presented some problems cause I, I felt like it was the one thing that was like a very dated concept. Everything else in the, everything else seems very fresh and it utilizes its sort of a uh, multimedia hmm. base. But, uh, I couldn't. I've read some reviews that think that she is actually your date at the at the movie, which was not exactly how I interpreted it. I thought she was talking to someone else, and that person was just ignoring her out of some kind of embarrassment. And so then I honestly thought that there was some kind of dynamic in their relationship that was being played out that I was supposed to try to decode. Um, but it's also weird because as the intensity of the movie on the screen increases, the sounds become even more loud and glaring. So there's there's a point where it suddenly sounds like there's hundreds of people outside of the structure banging their fists on the walls around you, which is really kind of terrifying. Yeah. Um, but it's, just, it's an incredible sort of assault of the senses, and it kind of really makes you question what is happening and what's real and actually what's an illusion. So when is this coming to Blu-ray? Um, well, the, th- the thing is, it's been touring since 2001. Yeah. 2001. I guess it won some award at the Venice Film Festival that year, um, and it's been kind of traveling all over since. And it's just now getting to Cleveland, I guess, 12 years later. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, it, you know what it reminds me of is uh, Charlie uh, Kaufman's uh, one-act play. Hope Leaves the Theater. Hope Speaking the of theater. Hope Davis. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a... It's a uh, it's a play that is oral. It's mostly oral, like yeah. it's just oral. It's sound, a a u r a l l a y, and it's uh, it's just you hear it's all these people. You know, people come into a theater and they sit down, but then they just start hearing other people around them and stuff. And it's, yeah. and the drama doesn't play out on stage; it plays out in over, the, th- the audience, right? Yeah, in yeah. the audience. Like Meryl Streep and Hope Davis. It was part of a like a series of one act. Like Coen Brothers did one. Yeah, and then Charlie Kaufman did one. It's really good. So <laughs> good one. Yeah, Hope Leaves the Theater is. I'm not a big yeah. fan. The Coen Brothers one is very high concept and weird, but the yeah. Hope Leaves the Theater is pretty good. And that kind of reminds me of the same thing. What is there a is there some kind of narrative event that triggers people banging on? the theater like a hundred people trying to get it like what is that <laughs> i don't actually remember i mean that's the thing i mean the story reaches a point where at least the story on the film is there's some kind of conspiracy going on and someone is coming to this hospital to kill this patient and the nurse who was a part of keeping this patient there suddenly uh is trying to help him es- escape and it, the, the banging occurs sometime during that exchange. There, there's a lot of recurring images of this burning house in the countryside. Ooh, um, it's, very Lynchian. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's something that I'm I might try and go see again 
in the next couple of weeks because I hmm. think it's only got a month a month left here. The thing that it really left me curious about is why hasn't there been another filmmaker or artist, at least to my knowledge, that hasn't adopted this concept and absolutely actually tried to integrate it into some kind of narrative film. Well, William um, Castle. Wh- who? William Castle. I mean, this oh. is this to me is like yeah. first rate William okay. Castle kind of gimmick gimmickry where at yeah. one point. The, the person leaves the screen is in the theater. There was a... Uh, what was that? There was a... Uh, it's something like... There was some weird movie also from the 50s that was sort of aping William Castle in which it was... It, it, they only had like one print of it and it to- and they toured and it was a really bad monster movie where people were staying like overnight in a haunted house for money or whatever. Oh, uh, and, House on Haunted Hill. The original no, no, no. no. It, not, not House on Haunted it's, it was It probably stole that plot, but it wasn't House on Haunted Hill. But it was a thing where people from the screen would then come out to the audience or there'd be audience plants in the theater. Purple Rose of Cairo. Who will then... Who would <laughs> yeah, then be, that's what I'm thinking. Who would then <laughs> be dragged away from the theater and then they would later show up on screen. Like... Hmm. This sort of thing has been done before, but mostly in just the realms of gimmickry, you know? Yeah. Uh, like the sort of William Castle 1950s <clears throat> horror kind of mesovision or hypnovision or whatever. Um, that's really, I mean, you can, there's reasons why this has, like, it's not marketable. It's not, you know, like, it's, it's, right. it's, it's hard to rent out theater suit like you need to, you know, it's a very specific thing. Um, maybe I, something like the Art Institute in Chicago could host this. Yeah, uh, like, yeah, and I'm sure it. Ha- like, I'm sure if it's been touring since 2001, I'm sure it has played somewhere <laughs> in yeah. Chicago. Or something I've just never heard of it. It's just yeah, it's really fascinating to um, to be played out in this because it's normally just played out in sort of a B movie. How do we shock people in a way they're not mm-hmm. expecting? Kind of way, as opposed to actually exploring the form of right. a space and. Like, now this builds like a very almost like virtual reality or yeah. something that's mm. going on, and it's very at certain moments it's very anxiety inducing. <laughs> and uh, oh, I like that. I, I mean, I like um, sort of manipulative sound design too. Yeah, I also think some of the uh, short films of Chris Cunningham, some of those were art installations as well. Yeah, like they were very specifically about warping it. And actually, if you want to talk about films that are art installations I've always posited that Quentin Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez's Grindhouse is an art installation um, when it was originally in theaters because it's supposed mm. to portray the idea of being in some kind of rundown theater or a yeah. drive-in theater and it's supposed to transport you somewhere else and it's sort of it's very deliberately manipulating the space and manipulating what you see on screen and like there's yeah. a fucking uh, advertisement for a Tex-Mex restaurant nearby that to me I think is the probably the biggest mainstream art installation that has happened in the past. Uh, and it wasn't very financially successful, but why? That, you know, but it's also why I just, I have, no real, audience. I have no real interest in buying those movies on home video. And it, to me, they were just very much about like when I saw Grindhouse in theaters, like people left after the first movie, there were people who just didn't know what was going on. And like, and there were people who were just walking in and out and just like, it was, it, very effectively and successfully transformed the space into a different kind of mm. thing than if people were just there to see uh, Transformers or whatever, you know? So, but that's really, I'm, I'm glad you saw that, Zach. That's really interesting. Yeah, it is. I'm really it's fascinated very unique by, experience. by that sort of thing. Um, you know what fascinates me? What? Human relationships. And Stories We Tell is... An incredible documentary from director Sarah Pauly. Oh, 
Do, do we have a sound effect for a good segue? In yeah, <laughs> sick. Just like this, like, oh, sick segue. Well, I, at I least feel I, like, I feel like since Take This Waltz, there's been a Sarah Polly Sarah Pauly segment on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Every you were going to say Sarah Potter. Sarah <laughs> Potter. Yeah. <laughs> so I saw Sarah Potter in The Prisoner of a Monogamous Relationship. Nice. Um, this is like the, it's like a culmination of the themes she's been exploring in her other two movies. Uh, and like, it's really just kind of brought up right at the top where, you know, she asked her father, can you please tell me the whole story in your own words? And that really sort of sets the tone for the movie because everybody, everybody has this (laughs) exploration of, you know, what they remember, uh, you know, from a subjective point of view. And just, it becomes this kind of exploration of secrecy and, uh, memory and just, family relationships and how it affects everybody individually. Well, Uh, I think real quick, the, the main story is kind of like her, um, learning about the events surrounding her birth. Right. Yeah. Um, And, you know, just uncovering cause she didn't, I mean, she had a brief relationship with her mother, but she died at a very young age. So she's interviewing everybody to find out more about her and sort of learn from the past. Uh, and you know, it's kind of this interesting, fact and fiction kind of line that she sort of plays with because I almost feel like the audience is kind of put in the same position as her. Like we're trying to play the role of detective at some point and figure out like specifically what happened or what she's going through or who without giving things away, you know, who, um, you really get a feeling that there's the filmmaker or the person who's conducting the interviews has, almost no more knowledge than the audience itself. And so mm. it really is kind of like a, a very um, vicarious journey. Yeah. And like, you know, sometimes you might at this point in time, like kind of yawn at the idea of a talking head kind of documentary, which it isn't like entirely that, but all the interviews are sort of uh, presented that way. And yet like they're so engaging and funny and really, uh, you know, reflective about themselves in a way that's always interesting. I feel like that was a that was a reference to me. Just <laughs> now about the talking head documentary thing. Yeah, well, I, I mean, you're specifically talking to me. Well, they're not really yeah. used for like sound bites or clips no. or anything no. like that. Yeah, that's what I want to. Uh, uh, just from obviously, I have, I have not seen this movie. I did not get to go to the uh, to the to the festival. You guys get to go and uh, see this, but. Um, what I am against is sort of talking at documentaries that are just recapping an event that happened. Um, like that is just, you know, it's just instead of writing something like it, that aren't very inherently cinematic, but there's Mm -hmm. something very inherently cinematic about people telling their story through their lives and the way it comes out of their heads into, out of their mouths. Like, yeah. And how it can be contradictory. I mean, that's what, that's what gates of heaven is. That's what, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah is that's a that's a movie where and it's, it's not just, just about an event it's about an actual person that yeah, you know was absolutely left the earth that's, too soon yeah so well it's kind of she confronts her own ignorance and mm-hmm. as she goes on this like the characters that she's interviewing become more and more informed as well and they're also confronting their own ignorance about it oh yeah and oddly enough it allowed me to confront my own ignorance about my family's past in some way like it, i was as, as i was going through the story i was like thinking of certain parts of you know my family in a very like interactive way rather than this kind of like me, 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 me thing. It was very, 
that's what and that was what's crazy about like being able to talk to her afterwards too because it's like another extension of that interaction and hearing her like elaborate even further on what it was like to make this uh and then like everybody asking even more interesting questions on top of it i don't know it, the movie itself became kind of like this I- idea behind do we own our own personal history and how does it you know, uh, evolve through other people, but it's also about the function of art and telling truth and the nature of documentary in a way and how we kind of, how how is it like the function of art? Like what? I think it's, it's more of like the storytelling process in of itself can, you know, uh, be filtered through different, like almost like what we were talking about room 237. Yeah. You know, and like how subjective interpretations can sort of, uh, override you know the perspectives and i think or like it, how one small piece of misinformation can kind of snowball yeah, into yeah. a gross interpretation oh <laughs> right exactly I, th- I i think it's it manages to be more than like an expose or anything it, it really becomes like to me another affirmation about why we love to connect through storytelling and you know often there's flaws in the way we tell stories because our memory is so flawed um, and then, you know, when things are revealed throughout the movie, including something towards the end that I hadn't realized, uh, the way she was telling the, you know, uh, sort of flashbacks, what, like, so, like something is revealed more than just about the story itself. It's something is revealed about the way she's making the documentary and the way she's presenting it to the audience that I thought was really profound and kind of something I'd never seen in a documentary before. Uh, where it was sort of toying with your perceptions of what she's presenting. This is her first documentary, yes. right? Um, you you said you got a chance to talk, uh, talk to her. I imagine there was some kind of Q&A. Did, what sparked the whole, what sparked her doing this intensely personal kind of project as opposed to like another narrative film? Or well, she sort of goes into that in the film. Um, yeah. I mean, it's mostly just to find out about her, uh, you know, her father... In kind of this, uh, should we spoil I, some no, of it? Or, I, I don't okay. know. That's like tough. It's one of those movies too where you want to find out for yourself yeah. when you're watching it. Do you more. know if this has any kind of release plans or if it's it's out in Chicago? It's kind of got a limited release right now. I believe they do have it at the Landmark on Clark and Diversity. Yes, <laughs> it's a very for all you Chicago <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Yes. I'm going to be seeing it again. But hey, you know. I, it sounds very interesting. It is. Yeah. It's. As much as I love Take This Waltz, it's almost like Light Years better. Well, it also is a very good roadmap, too, like you said, for understanding her other films. Yes. I think also on a technical level or just a filmmaking level, she does a very, you know, kind of admirable job of presenting everyone rather fairly. Um, yeah. Her, your mother, you find out some, some possibly... There's no judgment. Dis- yeah, possibly despicable facts about her, but she really comes off as, as you know, somewhat of a flawed person, but still a very um, full of life individual and yeah. and there's no like you said no judgment there's no berating or uh, tearing down of any characters it's just kind of sitting back and listening and a lot of times that is kind of a big risk because you know who do you boo who do you cheer for right and well you can cheer for her father because he's an amazing very yeah. articulate <laughs> guy um but it's still very compelling just like you said from the stories mm-hmm Absolutely. And so, that's one okay. of the things I love about, uh, you know, interacting with people. Real quick, she interviews her father. Does she interview other people connected to that same story? Or is it yeah. she yes. interviews? Okay. So yeah. it's her family so it's all, and other people yeah, that she interacted about, with. Yeah. yeah. It's, so it's about one sort of subject. She just talks to a lot of different 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And yeah. there, there are also um, like recreations. Um, they have actors playing like her mother and her father, and they do. Um, See, I thought those were actual home movies when I was. Some of them. <laughs> there's there's a slight integration, but most of the stuff I believe with her mother is um, just recreated. Yeah, um, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. some of it you can kind of tell, like with one character when he's at a, a particular funeral and there's a close up on him. Obviously, mm-hmm. that never would have right, been in right, a home right, movie. Right. So that kind of stuff didn't bother you. It, it, how how is that sort of uh, imposition of kind of uh, fictional filmmaking, uh, di- like different li- than well, say, a lot of say, say, imp- yeah. say imposter, yeah. impo- which that part did bother you. No, like, what, the imposter. What? Well, the entire point of the film is looking at the stories and the sort of fictions that people are creating and listening to them tell them. I so yeah. I think it's entirely fair. No, yeah, I, I was only asking because so. specifically Jim, that was something that bothered him about the imposter. That uh, that and I was just sort of under wondering what kind of uh, how differently it was done. Mm-hmm. And I'm still, you know, I've said this before on the show that like the imposter is something that I want to rewatch and okay. reconsider because yeah. I think my expectations going in were sort of clouding my opinion of it, but also uh, you know hype and also just like I wasn't exactly sure what the film was thematically trying to get at until you sort of elaborate on Mike D'Angelo's uh, what is it cognitive dissonance mm, there was something what was that it's about uh, oh what is that word no and it's psychological so I should remember it I've but. been uh, Jim uh, a little behind the curtain Jim bought uh, some Paps Blue Ribbon for the David Lynch episode and uh, antimony so I no can't the word now <laughs> um, but uh, yeah I'll think of it Denial, something like that. I think it's about denial. Epistemology. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Is it about uh, transference? No, that's most of David Lynch. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, so, what are we doing with you, Patrick? Oh, uh, well, I have not been on an episode proper since Claire Denise, which was in March. So, I actually have a shit ton of movies to talk about. And what do we do with a shit ton of movies? We do a lightning round. Cue theme song. No, I, I use a different theme. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm going to do a... Uh, anyway, I'm going to do a lightning round. I'm excited. And, uh... We have a new sound effect I got and everything. 17 movies right here on this list. <laughs> Jesus. Oh. <laughs> okay, sorry. And, uh, Jim, do you have the timer ready? I do. Go. Do you have the, uh, ding sound effect ready or whatever? Yes, I do. Okay. And number one is Sorority Babes at the Slimeball Bolorama, which was a it's a full moon full moon film with Leanna Quigley. It's about it starts off as a sex comedy, which is like which are like these guys sneak over to a sorority, and the sorority hazing is just like this like ten minute long spanking scene. And the whole reason I, I found it, so I looked at the Wikipedia entry, and it said this has one of the best spanking scenes in mainstream film, and that really cracked me up. I love when on Wikipedia you can tell the personality of someone who put it in. So it's they have to sneak to a bowling alley, and they have to break in and they have to steal a trophy, um, and then they actually find a genie. Okay, so uh, there we go. That's pretty busy. Uh, Time of the Wolf is a Michael Haneke movie. I didn't get to talk about on the uh, Michael Haneke podcast so I was in here. But it's, uh, it's about the end of the world, and it's a very low-key kind of thing. Um, it's a very Michael Haneke sort of thing. It's very sparse. It's very emotionally distant. Is it's it post-apocalyptic? It's And it's not bad, but it's it's also not super compelling. So the thing about Time of the Wolf, it's it's I didn't get a lot out of it. And honestly, that was one of the reasons 
why I just could not be on the Michael Haneke episode. It was just like I could not get through some of his films. Uh, so there we go. Fiend Without a Face is a British horror film uh, from the 50s. Might be early 60s. But anyway, it's a horror sci-fi where uh, um, people's bad thoughts get uh, turned into things. It's actually probably Ooh. where David Cronenberg's The Brood came from. And, uh, but what's great is there are stop-motion brains at the very end and the climax, and they're so funny, but when they get shot, like so much blood comes out for a 1950s movie, and it's so gross. It's actually... The closest thing I could say Fiend Without a Face is like is Return of the Living Dead, where it's that sort of thing where it works as a horror movie and it works as a comedy. Um, Gojira is, of course, the original uh, Godzilla film. I saw that for the first time recently. That is uh, really good. I was shocked. Uh, it actually is like a procedural for the first hour Ooh. where it's just, there's no main characters. There's just like humanity as a whole trying to figure out what do we do about a giant fire-breathing lizard. Um, and it's really sparse. Like when that the main sort of attack on Tokyo uh, there's no music and there's like a part where a mother like just tells her children well we're gonna be with dad now like it's really scary and not like most Godzilla movies but uh, you know what is scary is shock it's a Mario Bava movie yes I love it and uh, it's about like a haunted house it's sort of a mix of like a, like a poltergeist and maybe a shining a lot of those early Italian movies were just ripped off the shining a lot and uh, the thing I like about Mario Bava movies is he has a lot of integrity like he'll just tell a story a lot of those Italian horror films they just make no fucking sense they're just excuses to have weird set pieces but, like, shock, like, has integrity of a story. And it's, parts of it are silly and parts of it are funny. And it does have that weird kind of Italian horror movie thing where there's, like, a weird jazzy, funky soundtrack. Uh, Horrible is another Italian horror movie. This one uh, is by Joe D'Amato. And it's a ripoff of Halloween. Um, it's actually a ripoff of the first two Halloween movies in reverse. It starts with this guy, uh, this psycho killer, Michael Myers-type character, being in the hospital. He kills nurses. And then he escapes. And then he starts stalking a babysitter. They don't... It's not the place on Halloween. It takes place during the Super Bowl. But because it's from Italy and apparently the translation bad, it's actually <laughs> the American Football Championship. And uh, it's kind of boring at parts. But the kills are great. And it has a really amazing, like, free frame final image and I'm a sucker for amazing freeze frame final images um, there's a Lost in Translation uh, which is a movie by Sofia Coppola and it's not very good it's basically Sofia Coppola no it's true Sofia Coppola is basically trying to do Wong Kar Wai but she kind of like just chickens out at the end like a, a real like she does the like have you ever seen The Simpsons and uh, the, the fake the fake Casablanca <laughs> ending of The Simpsons where it's uh, like oh I couldn't leave I had to come back like that's what like, Lost in Translation should have ended in that awkward moment, and they just never got to say goodbye. I believe that was the critic. Argument invalidated. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> no, it was actually The Simpsons. Uh, there was also Going to Pieces, which is a documentary about the slasher film, uh, and it's not a great documentary. It covers a lot. If, you, like, if you're familiar with slasher films at all, it covers a lot of the same stuff, but I, I just love 80s slasher movies. I just love just the aesthetic of them and everything, and just a, a movie where it's just nothing but clips of uh, 80s slasher movies I, I kind of am a sucker for it also they do a weird thing where everyone they interview they interview them like in a, like they interview John Carpenter in a graveyard and they interview um, uh, whoever from, who directed Friday the 13th they interview him at a like a cabin by the lake like um, there's uh, Prince of Darkness which is a John Carpenter horror movie it's still super fucking scary yes. still amazing yes. still the most underrated John Carpenter movie I'm yeah. going to be ringing that bell for a while the first 20 minutes of that movie are some of the best editing you will ever see and I love the idea it's, it's almost the story, parable of the blind man and the elephant where everyone has a different idea of what's happening down mm-hmm. in that basement with the with the evil but because none of them are actually properly communicating one person translating one person checking the age one person looking at the chemical reaction like they don't know what's going on until it's too late and then Alice Cooper like stabs them to death with a sign and they're all trapped and I love that yeah it's really good and um 
Blair Witch Project is one of the best movies ever made. Never heard of it. And that is true. It's just one of the best movies ever made. It's not the scariest movie ever made, which is how they advertised it. So that's why like horror film fans hate it, because they're like, oh, that fucking overrated piece of shit. But the acting, <laughs> like if you watch any other found footage movie, the acting of Blair Witch Project is fucking phenomenal. It is so good. And then like, so there are so many different levels to the character of Heather and like that movie is so so good like it's, like she acts with the camera at a certain point she stops framing shots she's just holding on the camera like a security blanket that's what I've never seen in any other found footage horror movie I saw Park Row which is a Samuel Fuller movie it's Ooh. actually um, like an Aaron Sor- like Aaron Sorkin must watch this every day he must just have this on his iPod <laughs> and listen to it every day he must just jerk off to Park Row because Park Row is about the nobility of journalism in the like late 1800s and it's about this guy trying to start his own newspaper where finally he's going to do everything right it's basically the newsroom but it's uh, Samuel mm-hmm. Fuller so he's moving the camera like, he's whipping the camera around a lot like to the point where it's exciting and also to the point where it's distracting apparently it's a very low budget movie it doesn't look low budget it's very good um, there's also Ilza She-Wolf of the SS now um, Ilza She-Wolf of the SS is a super tasteless movie in which a uh, it's not a, it's not a holocaust it's not a concentration camp it is a quote unquote medical camp but it takes place during the fucking holocaust and it's a sexy essentially a sexy holocaust movie in which Nazis torture like prisoners in sexy ways and uh, I'm not super into that sort of thing, but uh, I watched it with people who were super into, you know, S&M, BDSM, so, and they were super into it. So if you like Nazis and domination and uh, just, like, amazing blondes with whips uh, flaying skin off people's bodies, Ilza, she will... Sign me up for that. Yeah, absolutely. Crippled Masters is a movie from... Um, oh, fuck. I can't remember if it's Thailand or the Philippines. It's not... China or Hong Kong or anything like that. But anyway, it's a great horror movie where, or not horror movie, great kung fu movie where the two lead characters are actual people who are deformed. Uh, they have deformities from thalidomide and stuff. So you see these amazing action scenes from people. One guy has no arms, one guy has no legs. The final fight, they team up. One guy jumps, the guy with no arms jumps on the guy, or the guy with no legs jumps on the guy with no arms back. <laughs> they form like Voltron and they fight. It is amazing. It's uh, that part's amazing. Uh, not so amazing is Enter the Dragon. Now, I've never been a big Bruce Lee fan. I think uh, from the very limited understanding of Bruce Lee, uh, mm-hmm. the thing that he sort of did differently than a lot of kung fu movies is all of his martial arts movies are very direct and they're very brutal and they're very realistic. Like, they're not very super stylized and they're not full of pageantry and weird, crazy moves. He's just, he'll fucking just punch you. And there's a really great physicality to Bruce Lee that makes this fight exciting. But at the same time, what I like about like Jackie Chan movies is the crazy yeah. pageantry and stuff. And Enter the Dragon, uh, you know, it's been ripped off a million times, so maybe there's diminishing returns from the time I first saw it. Uh, Yeti, A Gay Love Story is a movie that was picked up by Troma. It is shot on camcorders. It is a comedy horror movie about a Bigfoot that is being used by a cult (laughs) to uh, rape male campers. Um, It is really fucking funny. This is the thing I did not expect. It's really well written, and there's that trauma thing where it's so like it's so weird and it's so discursive and it's so low budget that just the fact that it's shot in camcorders and all the acting is terrible actually makes it better. Like there's just very specific trauma aesthetic, and so Yeti a Gay Love Story. It's on YouTube like a lot of trauma movies. It's amazing. um, the same people who made Yeti a gay love story they made Psycho Sleepover which is a movie about these girls who are having like a sleepover and then all, and then a mental hospital like a whole mental hospital empties and then comes to there and it has a little bit and it's amazing because it has a little bit higher production value it's still super low budget and shitty looking but just because it has a little better production values than Yeti a gay love story it actually doesn't have 
that same sort of charm. And it's sort of a testament to how specific the trauma aesthetic is that just just getting a little bit better cameras, it's not as good. I mean, there's a lot of kills, and it's still pretty funny. Uh, and uh, finally, Iron Man 3. Never heard of it. It's a really good movie. Oh, cool. It is. I want to see it. It's a, it's less a Marvel movie than a Shane Black movie, but I'm less a Marvel fan than a Shane Black fan, so that works Ooh. out. If you like great one-liners, if you just like uh, people taking the piss out of the Christopher Nolan, like the whole Mandarin thing is just taking the mm. piss out of the terrorist who is teaching people a lesson through acts of terror. Like, oh, that movie's so good. That movie's a lot of fun. If you don't like Iron Man 3, I'm going to bop you in the nose. There we go. 17 movies I saw. Holy in the past month. shit. Yeah. So, uh. That was something. Yeah. I feel like I was just a part of history. Yeah. <laughs> I need to clean up. Yeah, for real. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh. So, yeah. Oh, um. Yeah. Check out Getty. Yeti a gay love story is probably my number one. Oh, and if you didn't like Blair Witch Project when you first saw it, check Here's it out again. Yeah. It's actually it's incredible. Yeah. I would even possibly want to rewatch Blair Witch 2 because I was one of the few people that didn't hate it. I never saw that one. I like Paradise Lost. The, that was the same yeah. director as Paradise Lost, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, completely different. And some kind of monster. Yeah. yeah, but being able to direct great documentaries. I mean, Paradise True. Lost, it was just an embarrassment. They had an unfair advantage over every other documentary. Every scene in Paradise Lost would be the climax of any other documentary. Yeah, no that, kidding. that movie just is like way above and beyond it like that was crazy so sorry uh, well, that was my lightning round and it was very good thank you thumbs up hey. so um, in my room it's, it's starting to get hotter than Georgia asphalt and uh, we're going to need a little breather here so we're going to take a break here and uh, have I ever announced that we're taking no, a break you're, on the show? <laughs> you're breaking the illusion people think that we go away and then when we come back we just like, record a song live they don't realize that we like, we'll be right back yeah. on the Directors Club Podcast bye bye um, yeah so after our break we're going to talk about the director of the episode mm-hmm. who is it? it's David, David Lynch. Lynch he made short films and paintings so he's an artist all the while he did a racer head dune and blue velvet Mulholland Drive is the best even Ebert said holy shit But he's so fucking great He's David Lynch David Lynch, oh Well, just like you heard in the song, David Lynch is an artist turned director. Known for his surrealist, surrealist, surrealist films, 
he has developed his own unique cinematic style, which has been dubbed Lynchian, a style characterized by its dream imagery and meticulous sound design. The surreal, in many cases, offers violent elements contained within his films, which has been known to disturb, offend, or mystify audiences. He was born to a middle-class family in Missoula, Montana. Lynch spent his childhood traveling around the United States before going on to study painting at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philly, where he first made the transition to producing short films. Deciding to devote himself more fully to the medium, he moved to Los Angeles, where he produced his first motion picture, the surrealist horror film Eraser Head. After Eraser Head became a cult classic on the midnight movie circuit, Lynch was employed to direct The Elephant Man, from which he gained mainstream success. This being employed by the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, he proceeded to make two films after the science fiction epic Dune, which proved to be a failure, and then a neo-noir crime film called Blue Velvet, which was critically acclaimed. Let's hear what the guys at Directors Club have to say about that. So in 1986, uh, David Lynch had made uh, three feature films. Uh, correct, he, he had made Eraserhead, um, Elephant Man, Elephant Man, and he had and done Dune. <laughs> and Dune was his sort of rare... He forayed into Hollywood, and he never forayed back, thankfully. Um, uh, and he came out with Blue Velvet, which is a movie about a innocent boy coming back from college and discovering the dark side of the town he's from, and just sort of falling into the dark side of things. Um, and that's, that's the story of Blue Velvet. Oh. I, this is my favorite David Lynch movie. I'll just say that up front. This to me is not only my favorite. I, I think this is, and I like. I really like some of his movies. I think uh, Blue Velvet is light years beyond anything else he's ever done. I think this is like, like everything from the uh, the photography to just the story to the way that the themes match up with the technique and the way that just the feelings you get and everything about this movie to me is just absolutely perfect. Um, what do you guys think about Blue Velvet, Jim? I'm mostly on board for most David Lynch films, and this was the one I think I fell in love with first. The, uh, I, I should, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. So I should say, I'm very hot and cold on David Lynch mm-hmm. in general. There are films that I... I there's stuff by him I love. Um, I love Premonition of a Horrible Deed. I love... Or I can't remember. Eraserhead. I love Eraserhead. I love Blue Velvet. I love Twin Peaks... In, you know, until like the last like eight episodes or so. Mm-hmm. Um, like to me, when you say you love Twin Peaks, does that include Firewalk with me? No, no, of course not. That's a horrible movie. <sighs> uh, we'll talk about that later. I know you like Firewalk, with me. but I kind of liked it. On the as much as I love those movies, I really hate Wild at Heart. I really hate Lost Highway. I really hate <clears throat> Firewalk with me. And to me, David Lynch is a person who is an immense talent, but he doesn't always direct his talent into projects that. Uh, that uh, support support his talent, and to me, Blue Velvet is the epitome of David Lynch's. It tackles everything that he's most interested in. It tackles it in the most interesting way. It's shot in the most interesting way. So that's that. I should yeah. We should probably introduce how we all stand on David Lynch as a whole. Sorry. Yeah. About that. No, I that's cool. You, Jim. No, I just uh, he seems to really focus on fragments of personality and these sort of psychological themes, and he's very Freudian. There's so many essays on like the Freudian touches he puts into every film, like there's like at least a half a dozen sort of Oedipal 
sort of analysis all of Blue of his, Velvet. All of his movies are about displacement or transference. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and what's really strange is that I got a text from a friend who was asking, r- literally as we started, about disassociation. Yeah. <laughs> so it was kind of a little weird. But um, I do think, even when he's, over, when he's self-indulgent, I find him interesting um, aesthetically. Even something like Lost Highway, I think, kind of goes up its own ass, but I don't care. It's it's. I wouldn't say it's the femme fatale okay, defense. Okay, Tarantino. <laughs> it's, it's like the femme fatale defense was like, I don't know, I just like it. It's crazy. It's ridiculous, but I love it. Um, but I actually do think Lost Highway is has a correlation to Mulholland Drive, and it's thematically rich. But with Blue Velvet, um, I think it is very much a summation of all he's wanted to accomplish and his themes are really identifiable you know and it's all set up in the opening like visually it does seem to just coalesce in a really specific way that i'd never seen before um you know there's very vibrant colors there and it's sort of uh integrated into like a noir kind of setup which I really think is effective. And he's like, in terms of the things I love the most about him, it's definitely sound design and just interesting uh, choices in terms of what to focus on visually. You know, it could be like just a ceiling fan or, uh, you know, a house on fire or just the, the severed ear in Blue Velvet. Like just the way frames. Yeah, uh, exactly. The, when at the very end, the, sort of at the very end when he, when, uh, when Kamal Bachman goes back to her apartment and, the way he frames like the uh, walkie-talkie hanging out of the guy's mm-hmm. car, like that mm-hmm. is so weird and great. Like that one close-up that keeps coming back. But I'm a I'm a big dream nerd. Yeah, <laughs> and so in almost every one of his movies, a character literally talks about a dream they had, and that seems something like uh, in Twin Peaks: Firewalk with Me. It seems kind of weird and random especially at the very opening like i actually love the first 20 minutes of firewalk with me a lot because he's really playful and kind of he's surreal but in almost more of a comedic way i think and then you know of course kyle mclaughlin comes in to talks about a dream and then all hell breaks loose but i think like with blue velvet especially the first uh, the first time i like you know saw this probably too young as usual I'd never been more terrified by a villain. When is the right time to expose your your kids to? Um, I don't know. Nitrous oxide, uh, rape and PBR. Yeah. The younger, the younger, the better. Yeah, <laughs> but I just think uh, he he manages to mash up a lot of ideas and themes that work really well, and there's certainly you know this idea of certainly a, a car alarm dysfunctional yeah. families. Um, you know, and sadomasochism, and just kind of like. Almost a. I'm trying to think of the idea that I had earlier, um, where he's trying to create this world of illusion and illusion, and sort of finding this really interesting, uh, you know, approach that I never had noticed before until like recently when I'm rewatching it and sort of, you know, I have more of a refined like psychological palette. But I think it's. You know, he's just imaginative, I think. And there's, you know, like we mentioned, there's a lot of transference and attachment and trauma. And in Blue Velvet especially, like, there's just this passionate demand for for love. And then, you know, it becomes about control and power, even with uh, Kyle MacLachlan's character in how he's sort of, not in the same extreme, but begins to mirror 
uh, Dennis Hopper in a very sort of minimal way, but he starts to recognize his uh, own decay of character. It's like the Nietzsche quote. Yeah. You gaze into the abyss. Exactly, yeah. But like I said, I think he, he's really good at capturing um, fragments of personality and yet sort of um, draping them in a very surreal backdrop. What and do you mean by f- uh, fragments of personality? I don't think... Uh, uh, not so much in Blue Velvet, but definitely in a lot of his later films, a lot of the uh, characters are not really, uh, <laughs> they're not, I don't know, I would, I would, it's hard to say because I don't think Robert Blake's character actually exists in the real world. In Lost Highway? Yeah. I think he's... Re- well, see, re- that, I, that I totally disagree with. I think there's just this <laughs> idea of, like, him... That's and I think that you can debate that, especially since you know he's mentioned, uh, you know, like he's actually noticed by someone else, but other than Bill Pullman, um, and I think, but at the same time, he he to me sort of represented the super ego in like uh, trying to mediate things um, and trying to bring attention to what Bill Pullman's uh, like internal struggle is at the time. I think you can, I think you can honestly take any David Lynch film and really try to break it down by the id, the ego, and yeah. the superego kind of philosophy. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, I just, I believe that, I know that he deals with dreams a lot, but I don't find, I don't think any of his films are about dreams, mm. and I believe that everything that you're seeing is really happening. I, uh, I would, I would agree, and I'm going to very be interested but, to see what you have to say about Mulholland Drive, but real yeah. quick, yeah. Yeah. Matt, Matt has not gotten a chance to Let's uh, hear your take. speak. How do you feel about David Lynch in general and about where Blue Velvet sort of uh, lies in his filmography? It's very difficult to put it into words because I think he's somebody who makes... I think rather deep films, but asked to be appreciated on somewhat of a superficial level. And I think that really comes out in, in Mulholland Drive, and we'll get to that. But even in um, a lot of his films, I think a lot of his characters tend to be very superficial, or like almost archetypes. Um, even with like Kyle MacLachlan in uh, Blue Velvet, he is kind of, uh, he doesn't have to seem to have much of a brain. Now, there's some character development in that um, that is pretty interesting, but for the most part, you know, when you have the opening shot of like a fireman going by in a fire truck, like waving, you know, it's it's trying to create a particular mood and like this idea of Americana. of innocence, and it's not necessarily trying to find depth within the characters, but I think uh, convey a feeling. And um, I think another thing of of Lynch's is really conveying certain feelings and uh, and moods as well, like a, a little bit Kubrickian, um, and that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to think. There's a, something else I was going to go into there, but um, yeah, and I think you also see that in in a lot of Twin Peaks that the characters tend to be a lot of archetypes, or that they're very close to the kind of soap operas that are inspiring that. Um, but but also, what I find interesting is that one of the most common themes it seems through his films is this voyeuristic nature or uh, this this kind of idea that there's always someone watching. And when I think of like the, the quintessential David Lynch shot, it's like the, the shot that I believe you posted, uh, Jim, or maybe it was Hugh Patrick, on the Director's Club uh, blog of um, 
of them at Ben's house where yeah. he's singing into the lamp and it's like kind of far away mm-hmm. and like looking straight on and you're just you're you're far enough away that you can see the people and they're facing you but you kind of want to be closer. Well the way I interpret because there's a couple mm-hmm. shots like that especially the way that uh Isabella Rossellini's sort of apartment is shot. Yeah. I mean mm-hmm. I mean also it's shot from the vantage point of the closet so it's going to be farther away from all the action and that yeah. that's the voyeurism aspect but I also think that the way he utilizes that is to create is to sort of enhance the uh, the disconnect between reality. Like it looks like a stage. It looks like yeah. if you watched a play of an apartment and you see the kitchen, but you also see the hallway leading to the bedroom and you also see the couch. Like to me, that's like those kind of the way he frames a lot of the interiors in Blue Velvet is very stagey. And I think and, and they're archetypes. But the thing that this sort of magic trick that David Lynch pulls, I think more than anywhere like Twin Peaks, but especially, I mean, but definitely Blue Velvet is uh, people, there's this melodrama and there's this archetypal nature of characters, but they're also just come across as very human and very real. And they don't feel like completely Brechtian and they don't feel complete, like say a Lars von Trier, like Dogville kind of thing. They don't feel like completely like symbols mm-hmm. um, in, in the good movie, in the good David Lynch movies, at least they don't like, uh, I, I think in Mulholland drive. Yeah. But I think that there, there is, he is kind of going for that archetype in, in blue velvet. And then you have Frank come on the scene and uh, you have, but Frank is so specific. Yeah. Frank yeah. is all Sadistic. about the specifics. And there's, yeah. and there's to Kyle McLaughlin's arc, I think is very real and very, well, that's the thing. He's clashing. Like you have, you know, two um, kind of hyper uh, amped archetypes, and then you know you have the very peaceful, um, loving, caring family, and then you have Frankman, who is the complete opposite of that. And it really is kind of creates like an explosion. Yeah. Um, when they do that, uh, Zach, what are your thoughts overall? Because I know you're a fan. Um, yeah, I'm a little more than a fan. Um, He's with David Lynch is without question my favorite filmmaker, and in a lot of ways, he's kind of the only filmmaker that really means much to me. And Blue Velvet was definitely, I think I saw it for the first time when I was seven, and uh, it was definitely David Lynch putting his disease in me, as Isabella Rossellini likes to say during the movie. Um, it took me a lot longer to get to things like Twin Peaks and Eraserhead. I kind of was actually holding out on that stuff for as long as I could. Um, but Blue Velvet to me is kind of the it's the lean, mean fighting machine of the David Lynch filmography. Mm-hmm. It's accessible without being conventional, um, and I think it is kind of the cornerstone of his work. It's kind of you guys have kind of already said it, but. All of the themes and the rich, colorful imagery that we associate with David Lynch, I think, is where it's it's really first developed in Blue Velvet, at least what he went on to do eventually later. Um, Whereas those earlier films were very industrial aesthetics. Um, It kind of plays to me like a classical orchestral composition, where it's just kind of pitch perfect and everything has this certain rhythm and there's this breeziness to it where it just all flows together in this very perfect unison and it's kind of been mentioned already but right from that opening sequence you know you're just intoxicated into his subtext with images like the hose getting tied up and the the you know shaking uh, ho- the drain and uh, all of the wet beetles underneath the grass. It's all this very subterranean world beneath the surface. And, uh, you know, it quickly establishes that naive quality 
that I think he's really going for, at least in small town America, with Blue Velvet and the yeah. and the perversion thereof. With the, right, definitely. You know, heart attack yeah, almost like the stuff. perversion of sensory perception, you know, and just like how we see one thing, but there's actually a lot more to it. And obviously, like the ear could be like, you know, the the turning a deaf ear or whatever that expression is on like trying to ignore the seedy underworld and then you know the eyes obviously with him you know being very voyeuristic and you know there's just different choices that he makes in this movie that seem to you know uh, come to the forefront in a much more meaningful way that you you know like any average filmgoer who's a fan of Hitchcock could maybe just I mean, gratif- gra- gravitate towards it's, it. It's, this, this is very I see a lot of similarities in something like Rear Window. Oh, yeah. It's actually an interesting to bring up Hitchcock. But I think more, also more than anything else about Blue Velvet is to me how it is such an incredible sort of portrayal of just an extreme oppression of a woman. Yeah. And sort of how he, he does this really interesting thing how she becomes this complete masochist mm-hmm. over the course of the film and just. Uh, I love Isabella Rossellini. Uh, there's, oh, yeah. no, there's no performance that she's done since that even comes close to what she does here. Uh, quick question for you, Zach. Do you think that um, that sort of masochism is a way of Isabella Rossellini's character dealing with being dominated by Frank, or do you think it's something that was buried beneath the surface and that arises from that domination? Um, I guess I'll go for you. With, and, I'll go with answer number so. two. Yeah, I I think it's it's something that is sort of let out of her because of what she's going through with Frank. Yeah, I don't think it's like a Stockholm syndrome kind of a deal. No, no, no. I mean she played. Isabella recently says that she played it that way, as if it mm. was a Stockholm syndrome. That's how she viewed the character. Interesting. But that wasn't how Lynch necessarily saw it. Uh, here's the thing about Blue Velvet that normally I'm the thing about David Lynch movies is he's very attracted to these very themes of these Americana and good versus evil and blondes and brunettes and these kind of old Hollywood kind of semiotics that honestly I quite often don't have any interest in. But what's crazy about Blue Velvet to me is despite the fact that it's so heightened and so clearly uh, it's it, it's ostensibly I should say because by the end the, it, it's ostensibly a morality tale but by the end the idea of the morality of what has gone on by all the characters is very muddled and it's a lot more clear that like it's not it's not black and white and that's honest that's what i really react to i really react to the idea that you see this woman like the first time you see this woman uh in any kind of sexual context she's just being abused and it's a clear <laughs> it's clear that she's scared of him and it's clear that she is um you know she's frightened and she's being captive and like she's being uh, you know physically abused but like then the fact that it immediately subverts that yeah. by saying by throwing into question how much of that is real and how much of that is just what she likes. Like, and the same way that, uh, Laura Dern sort of standing by Kyle McLaughlin, even after all that with Isabella Rosalie, like, look, some, like, this isn't perfect. It's not, it's not the boy. Uh, it's not that the boy goes into darkness and therefore is punished. It's the boy goes in darkness and therefore has a weirder, more complex understanding of how the Mm -hmm. world works. And that to me, is why I really respond to Blue Velvet is because even though it's so heightened, it's not simple. Um, so I think that Isabella Rossellini 
is a masochist. And I think she's a masochist before the film even starts. I think she's always a masochist. Yeah. And I think that just the idea of a 1950s aesthetic and a 1950s, ostens- again, a sensible sort of morality play that then says, well, there's levels to that. Yeah. And there's, yeah. good, there's, there's good abuse and there's like consensual abuse and there's non-consensual abuse. Like, there's a lot of duality going on. Like, well, it's not, yeah, I mean... You know, even just... Representing, ima- yeah, yeah. Dual- there's always duality and mirroring and image. Like that's sort yeah. of what he does. But it, but I think just the very fact that it sort of paints an eye, a picture of this sort of thing that isn't black and white. That isn't anyone who makes that who makes love by slapping someone around is evil, and anyone who makes you know, and anyone who doesn't do that is like good. Like that to me is what makes Blue Velvet Blue Velvet so captivating and so uh, interesting to me. All right, so interesting. Well, you think of it as being um, a, a movie that kind of criticizes that idealistic town, like you said, you know, the 50s mm-hmm. mentality, yeah. and yet it ultimately ends, I think, with a very uplifting, um, with a very uplifting finish. Uh, <laughs> that may be debatable, but you do see um, Isabella Rossellini get back with her character, but she also you know, discovers this uh, side of her sexuality and embraces it, and uh, Kyle MacLachlan and Laura Dern sort of go off into the sunset. Like, you think that... He, if he really wanted to expose Small Town, um, he would be far more critical of it. I don't think that a happy ending is necessarily the same thing as condoning Small Town morality. I think, like, and I actually... I have well, this, no, I, I don't mean condoning, I mean criticizing it. Well, what I'm saying is, like, I have this feeling about a, lot of, about a lot of Woody Allen movies, actually, as well. There are a lot of movies that people don't consider to be happy endings that I do, because the ending is that the character understands their world better, and their place in it better, and they're better off than when the movie started. And I think that despite the fact that everyone in this movie goes through such horrible trauma, the understanding that comes with that, and just mm-hmm. the fact that, that Isabella Rossellini now has her child, and she's gone through horrible things, but she's grown because of the horrible thing. Kyle MacLachlan has grown because of this sort of thing. Yeah. It's that, you know, it's it's not good conquering evil. Because no, 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 I don't mean that. I just mean yeah. it's more of an uplifting ending than you would expect. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm yeah, but you seem to imply that um, that in criticizing black and white morality, then therefore you can't have an uplifting ending. I think that be just the nature of the uplifting ending being that people are better educated about where they are is the criticism of that kind of black and white morality. The fact that the Robin mm. holding the bug is so weird and fake and the fact that the Robin didn't just show up on the window, the Robin shows up with the sort of the the symbol of evil and the symbol of sort of the darkness in its mouth like well, that, he's acknowledging the grotesque, yes, but the ideal. The, the happy ending comes from acknowledging it. The yeah. happy ending comes from acknowledging that this duality is not real. That right. that, that real life is more than that. Um, and even in the context of a super heightened fable, uh, that he sort of has that, that, that. At least I think mm-hmm. David Lynch sort of uh, has that sort of understanding. It's really interesting to me. And he does have an amazing collaboration with his. Uh, um, composer at Angelo Badalamente, which you know he's definitely one of my favorite uh, composers. And you know, like obviously, you can focus on the way Lynch tends to use music, including you know, fifties pop, and uh, I, you know, like especially uh, <laughs> the uh, In Dreams song, mm-hmm. and much like you know, using Crying and Mulholland Drive, you Another know, Roy bo- Orbison. yeah, both yeah. Roy Orbison songs, like. He manages to elevate them by, you know, incorporating them into some rather surreal imagery, and I think I'm I'm really taken with it because it's, uh, you know, 
taking a song and you know subverting it and making it something that you never would have imagined before. And I think he's really good at sort of externalizing the internal and. Uh, I, I just like I have like a real emotional response to both of those scenes, even though one is more. You could argue that I, it's comedic. I think just sheer just his skills as a filmmaker, his skills in editing and framing the shot and lighting the shot mm-hmm. and colors and the context of where that scene of the pacing and that that scene comes at that point in the movie, like. And, and like Frank all, Bruce's reaction towards the end, like he sort of has a different feeling I mean, as the song the, goes on. That to me is the audition scene, also like also the audition scene in Mulholland Drive. Like it's mm-hmm. it's that to me is better than anything else. That define that to is what I would point to and say that's why David Lynch is a filmmaker that is often unmatched by other people. Even if yeah. a lot of his move, the actual like feature films he ends up producing, I'm not a fan of. Like his just raw skills are incredible. He's able to make those moments just so vivid by just twisting them slightly right and just having them going a little too long and just every shot is a little too long and just the situation is just a little too weird and there's just always something off in the corner that you can't explain and you don't understand what's going on yeah he's a big fan of lingering yeah yeah zach anything i wonder uh, if he likes the cranberry song yeah yeah oh yeah <laughs> took me a second mm-hmm. uh, dream you're a dream to me oh no, no cran- cranberries did a song called dreams yeah they also did yeah, a song yeah. called linger Hmm. They also did a song called The Duality of Good and Evil in Small Town <laughs> 50s America. So, yeah, I think Lynch is a Cranberries fan. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a fan of Cranberries. That's a, good rec- that's a good record. Yeah. yeah. It was a great record. <laughs> kind of went on a little long, though. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So, yeah. So we all love Blue Velvet. Yeah, I really love Blue Velvet. I love the performances, too. Yeah. I think, every, mm-hmm. I, again, there's that weird magic trick that David Lynch pulls where... Every single person is like every single person is both like an archetype and both sort of feels like a symbol in a story, but also just feels real. real. Kyle MacLachlan is the perfect like he looks like there's some darkness in him, but he also looks like a Boy Scout. Like when he's just walking around in the forest <laughs> and like throw it like you have kind to, of looks like David Lynch. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. and <laughs> so does Justin Thoreau in yes. Mulholland Drive. Like yeah. that's uh, but well, even even when they go to the uh, coroner's office and he's like. What can you tell about the person from his ear? <laughs> there, but the, like, you really have to cast the right person because though that opening scene where he's just where it's a guy coming back from college and he's wandering around the forest throwing rocks at a trash can, like that could be just the lamest dumbest. Like what? Is, like what the hell is this, Andy Griffith? Like what is this? <laughs> like, it could have been horrible, and or it could be the other way where he could have cast someone who's baby fa- too baby faced and too innocent looking, and then they'd be completely unconvincing when they're being curving out or, or where they're slapping Isabel Bruce leaning around like like uh, Kyle McLaughlin it's no wonder that you know David Lynch chose to cast him as Agent Cooper in Twin Peaks because he's just so perfect perfectly cast like I don't think he's necessarily one of the great actors of all time but this is really really great role for Kyle McLaughlin um, and you know Dennis Hopper goes without saying yeah uh, Next, yeah, That's oh, my Jesus. <laughs> and so this is Dennis, angry. and this is sober. The first thing that comes out of his mouth. And the, word next. the other thing I love about it, this is sober Dennis Hopper. This is Dennis Hopper after yeah. he got sober. This is Dennis Hopper after he started to get moralistic. It, I don't think it was until the nineties that he actually became a Republican, which is kind of crazy. Oh, weird! I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, he yeah. 
Yeah, apparently he and George Romero well, fought this... a lot on the set of Land of the Dead as to what, how his character should be portrayed, since Land of the Dead is this crazy post-9-11, mm-hmm. like, liberal kind of thing about, you know... An allegory. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, well, this came out the same year as he was nominated for Hoosiers, and I think he played, like, an alcoholic in Hoosiers, Yeah, and that's what's... Two amazing well, roles in type, one year. She was just yeah. giving like, like, him alive. Everyone, everyone knew who Dennis Hopper was at that point. Oh, yeah. So you couldn't test, cast Dennis Hopper as just someone's dad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm like him and Dean Stockwell and Harry Dean Stanton, they're all like buddies for life. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what's kind of, there's a lot of, uh, you know, ties with a lot of the characters that Lynch the other thing about used, this movie, utilizes. Okay, okay. Dean Stockwell in this movie, like, this movie knows what parts to leave completely unanswered and to leave a mystery. Mm-hmm. Like that's something David Lynch does Who really well. Guy? There are things. There's some films by some films by David Lynch to a tiny extent. I would say Mulholland Drive almost falls in this category where the mystery overwhelms your ability, or at least my ability to enjoy the film because mm. it's just I I can't engage it because I don't know what's going on at any given time. But this, but Blue Velvet is such a master of just laying enough, just another intrigue, like finding an ear in the fucking forest in a meadow, like, f- like what is this house? Why are all these women here? Is is Dean Stockwell like some kind of like gay hustler? Like what is going on? And he given like that whole sequence where you, it's just like further and further into darkness, and you're just, and he's and Carmel is just being dragged along in this ride into the underworld, like so good, and it's because he knows what parts to just how to be evocative and yeah. how to not a- and how not answering any of that, those questions make keeps things evocative how, right? did, how does Brad Dwarf get a snake that he's dancing with <laughs> the yes oh you bastard I wanted to bring that up but yeah um, but yeah like the, what you just said Patrick I think that's something also that you see in a lot of his other films that there's some overlord like Bob in Twin Peaks or um, the guys in, in Mulholland Drive, the producers, or the person who's looking at the globe in Wild at Heart. Like all these people who somehow are manipulating things, pulling I the think strings. That goes, I think that also goes into what Zach was saying about like everyone's always being watched. Yeah. Um, sort of, obviously, the voyeurism is not subtextual in this film. It's very textual. Mm-hmm. But uh, by the way, how great is that scene in turning into a in like just perverting a sex fantasy like like is there any better allegory from the film than a guy getting oh i get to peek at this sexy lady taking off her clothes to getting this like to yeah. witnessing the most fucked up inexplicable thing that he's ever seen in his life and then and then being dragged out of the closet and then having to like be and then he's humiliated right. sexually like that to me is one of the craziest like like ah, it's so amazing. <laughs> like the way that in from moment to moment in a single scene, intent mm-hmm. and just the way you feel about what's going on is perverted and just changed and oh, so good. Like the way, oh, it's an innocent school, quote unquote, schoolboy fantasy of, oh, I get to peek and see the ladies changing or whatever. Like it's the porkies peeping through the little people or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, and then just the way it goes, no, there is no innocence. There's no this. This is going to get a lot more fucking complicated. Like well, that to me is the movie. I think Lynch just feels that film has this, is this great way of giving shape to the subconscious and i think he does that very successfully in in blue velvet like you said with that with you know the voyeurism scene becoming something much darker that would you know people think about but never would actually uh actually think that it would come into their lives it's just like we know that there's darkness but we mostly focus on the light (laughs) and i think lynch believes for the most part that there is uh, you know, hope and a light at the end of the tunnel, but with you know that is very um, 
it is a very gray area at the same time. I don't think he's all, you know, black and white. I think he acknowledges a lot of the things that get swept under the rug. And, you know, a picturesque town that's populated by dark secrets, that's all like, that's kind of what dreaming is, you know? I mean, it's, uh, we're, we're sort of given a visual representation of our dark secrets when we dream, too. They don't always have to be that way. <laughs> They're a lot more nonlinear and that you can't remember everything, but... Yeah. I still think that he's really good at being psychological without always calling attention to it. You know, I think I think he's very successful in that regard. Yeah, none of his films come across as didactic. Yeah, exactly. They might they might come across as opaque, <laughs> but they don't. You don't. You never feel like he's preaching to you. Yeah, um, and that's I, that's why I would respond so much more to someone like David Lynch than say you know Michael Haneke. Uh, and again, I'm not an expert on Michael Haneke. I've seen very few of his films, but. Uh, but like just the fact that David Lynch feels it and David mm-hmm. Lynch, there's a definite uh, sort of, and again, I wouldn't even say this about all of his films. I would say one of the things that divides wild at heart from most of his movies is I think wild at heart is super cynical and I don't think wild at heart is very sincere. And I would totally agree with you. And I would agree with you too. I didn't really notice until rewatching it. Yeah, me too. It is that, it seems to be made by a filmmaker who's very angry yeah. about something. And I, 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 I guess when you think about the time that it was made and you think of things that shortly followed, like the L.A. riots or, you, you know, you end up in the Gulf War, that there was a lot of change going on at the time. But it, it is a very strange film in that yeah. even the humor seems very misplaced in just downright cold. Yeah, I felt very points. detached after rewatching it and I was kind of surprised because I was like ready to defend it. And right. I, uh, you know, you watch a movie f- sometimes even just a few years de- later down the road and you kind of, you've changed as a person so your interpretation yeah. is. But my larger point is even that for someone who makes quote unquote artsy movies, for someone who quote unquote is, is, likes to obstruct like what he, the story is telling like, like everything's the, obvious re- the reputation that. of David Lynch is oh that's the guy who thinks up weird shit and he makes movies where it's just a bunch of weird shit happening like so few of his movies aren't super heartfelt and super sincere and very and very uh, and 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 very confident about what they're exploring mm-hmm. and you know very serious about what they're exploring and I think, and I think that that sort of thing is often overlooked by popular. I'm, I'm sure cinephiles and other dorks like us like know that. Yeah. But I think the general idea of David Lynch is just, oh, he's the guy who does the weird shit in the movies. Yeah, Wild at Heart and feels like a parody so, of David Lynch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why. That's why I don't like something like Wild at Heart because mm-hmm. it just feels like, oh, these are all the things I. These are what people who don't like David Lynch think a David Lynch movie is. Yeah, but there even there aren't that many David Lynch moments even in Wild at Heart, though. Like maybe, maybe the car wreck. Yeah, the car yeah. wreck for sure. And maybe which uh, is the best thing? The head, yes, the head getting yeah. blown off too. But um, but I believe that's also based on a novel. Um, mm-hmm. That's not like by a the guy novel. who wound up based on the novel and... Push by Sapphire. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long novel. Very strange turns. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but it's strange too. Even um, Nicolas Cage's character in that he just feels like he's reacting. Like he, you know, he has the big speech like this jacket is a symbol of my individuality and an expression of personal freedom. 
But he's somebody who's just basically influenced by everything that Pop comes culture. out. Pop culture. Well, uh, you, he, know, you know, he, Oz and yeah, like he bases his uh, personality on Elvis, yeah. and uh, which Nicholas Cage has gone on record as saying he does in real life. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of like an irony at the very heart of that, where he says that he's an individual. He says he has free will, and yet he's just copying everything that someone else <laughs> has done before. You know, he says, "Well, I got to leave my wife," and then you know he gets his ass kicked by an Asian gang, and mm-hmm. then the fairy comes down and says, "Oh, go back to her." But okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, what am the I thinking? fairy is Cheryl Lee. Oh. Yes. Oh, one thing, one yeah. thing that really bums me out about Wild at Heart is I think that movie would have been great if the if the two leads were like ten years younger. Like to me, they also just feel super old to be like in mm. this. Like, let's run away. Like, like to me, it's like a Badland story, except they're like yeah. fucking oh, thirty three years old. Yeah. What? What's that? Zach? What's that? You, oh, you were about I to kinda, say. You guys cut out. Oh. You, were, you were about to say something. Oh, uh, was I? Yeah. You said, <laughs> well, you see. I, no, I thought that was interesting you were talking about the two leads because for me the only thing that main, keeps Wild at Heart interesting is Laura Dern and Nicolas Cage's relationship together. Like, it's everything else that's going on around them that I have problems with. It's And kind of talking about the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, the book actually ends with them parting ways and not getting back together. Right. And Lynch just felt that that was not true to who their characters were. And so the only thing that keeps me watching uh, Wild at Heart is seeing, seeing Sailor and Lula kind of survive all of this chaos and make it out all right. Hmm. But I would agree that Nicolas Cage is probably the most interest, least interesting part of that film. Um, and, and kind of talking about, you were talking about The Grey and Blue Velvet, I feel like Wild at Heart is a movie that almost, it is a pretty black and white yeah. thing where it does reduce its characters to pure archetypes. And their, and their, their identities are entirely com- like made up of, of a, a specific thing, like his coat. Or, you mm. know, it's, they're, it's very simple kind of thing. That was the first movie he made after Blue Velvet, right? Yes. He made, he made, he made Blue Velvet, Twin, then he did Twin, Twin Peaks, <laughs> and then yeah. he left Twin or Peaks. Twin Peaks, I think, was right after Wild at Heart. I think he left that. Twin Peaks to do Wild at Heart. Yeah, okay. they started season season two started as he was kind That's of... That's why there's that huge drop, because he was no longer like making a lot of creative decisions on... And they have all those weird, stupid subplots where, like, James goes and, like, has an affair with a married woman in a different town. Ugh, the worst. (laughs) Anyway, um, but I bring it up up just to say, like, to me, this is, again, why Blue Velvet is so amazing is that it is David Lynch doing the things that David Lynch do well, the best, and... And it's the perfect story for the, for that kind of thing, and it's the perfect way to tell that story, and they're the perfect actors. And just on a scene-to-scene basis, there are so few scenes in this movie that I don't, like, just love. I, I love when they're at the diner and he's trying to convince her of his whole initial plan. Like, to me, that is another part where they're no longer archetypes and they get very specific. I mean, you could say it's sort of a uh, Hardy Boys kind yeah. of thing, but, like, it, he... The way that he... The, the the way that like they're the sincerity I think, well, it's, it. they're sincerity but it's also they're like three years age difference and and like for him to be like what like he's 20 or 21 and for her to be like 17 or 18 or something mm-hmm. like that like to me like that is a weird like the thing you don't go to David Lynch movies to see 
minute observations of human behavior. But the difference between like an 18 year old and a 21 year old or like a 20 year old and a 17 year old are exactly that where she's just idolizing him because he's out. (laughs) He's left the bubble of high school Uh and he shows up in his car. And the fact that he has a car is like to me, that relationship is so amazing because it's based on these little details and observations about uh, like what people are at that age that you would Mm -hmm. never expect to see in a David Lynch movie. Um, because they're everything is so hyper. Yeah, because everything's usually or, so heightened. Yeah, it's, that's um, the word. And so that's one of the reasons I really love Laura Dern is because Laura Dern is able to be kind of. It's a tough task to be a character who is not super interesting on her own, but to play everything, to play very specific feelings and emotions yeah. and very specific motivations in every in any given scene, and like. The way she reacts to Isabella Rossellini showing up naked, like there's just that that whole cycle of what is happening. We have to help her. Okay, we have helped her. Now I'm fucking pissed. Like, <laughs> like that, that huge opening of her mouth and like the yeah. eyes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like yeah. The the part the the part of the movie that was that that was also featured in Squid and the Whale. Like that sort of like he put by disease, oh, yeah. disease me, and then it cuts to the kids in the Squid and the Whale watching it. Like. That that to me defines what makes this movie so great. Is it's able to be huge and big and have that crazy moment, but it's also able to be. My, it's, it looks at the macro as well as the micro, and that a lot like Twin Peaks, sort of yeah, you know, yeah, soap, soap Twin opera. Peaks does, Twin Peaks does it in a different way, and I think yeah, I think David Lynch benefited a lot from Mark Frost, sort of mm-hmm. a guy who is a seasoned television person, being like, all right, here's how you make a television. Right. You here's make how you here's how you make a TV show. You lay a million little threads. Uh, and then you just start weaving these threads together, mm-hmm. and you start in your and you're knitting a coat. You need you knit coats, right? That's mm-hmm. what a coat is. Of course, I have a nice knit wool coat. Wool. Anyway, uh, I'm yeah. I don't want mean to dominate the conversation, but Blue Velvet is not only like my favorite David Lynch film. It's probably my like in my if we did a new top ten favorite films episode, like rewatching it this time. I it's definitely in my top ten. Hooray! Of all time. Um, I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. yeah, we're both happy. <laughs> Um, and this is again this is a person who is not a David Lynch fan I'm Mm -hmm. not like I I often get frustrated with David Lynch fans uh, but just I think I think David Lynch is an undeniable talent and I think every single reason every single way he's an undeniable talent is best utilized in Blue Velvet yeah um, way more so even than something like Eraserhead, which I think is a masterpiece. Like, mm-hmm. that's how good I think Blue Velvet is. I think Blue Velvet is a masterpiece that is way, way, way better than other masterpieces. <laughs> uh, so. Well, I gotta... We should transition over yeah. to Mulholland Drive because yeah. this is a movie that uh, has taken me a long time to process and... Uh, Twelve years. <laughs> really? Yeah, I guess it's been that long. Jeez. Um, when I first saw it, I just... I actually thought it was pretty minor Lynch, and uh, you know all the reviews came out sort of declaring it as one of his very best films. And you know I watched it a second time, still didn't think it was anything transcendent. You know I would always stand by Blue Velvet, and I don't know what happened like the last two times I watched it because I think it is a masterpiece. I think it's kind of a mess, <laughs> but a really sort of interesting mess, and you know it becomes this. Again, version of, uh, you know, this, like, intense, unrequited love that slips you into madness once it's taken away is something that I really respond to with Naomi Watts' character. I mean, it takes a while to sort of realize, you know, that the first half of the movie is not really happening. 
Well, it's not the first half. It's oh, the it's, first. It's everything yeah, but it's the last a, twenty minutes. Yeah, everything but the last twenty minutes. Um, you know, and it's kind of a. It has a lot of detours. To that, to that effect, uh, real quick, maybe we should go around and actually decide if we all agree that the last that everything but the last twenty minutes didn't happen. Um, because this is a film. I obviously people arguing about what uh, Mohan Drive means and what is a, and what is actually real and what isn't real and what's a dream and what's not mm-hmm. a dream or what's heaven and what's hell or whatever. Like that is a conversation that's had a million times, and I don't want it to dominate Mohan Drive because no, there's no, a no, lot no. that's interesting beyond what it act, what the text is saying. But we should yeah, probably so. all at least establish where we're coming from. So, Jim, what do you think the what do you what do you think the what is your interpretation of Mohan Drive? Um, well, like I said, the uh, last 20 minutes is real. Everything else is not. It's really uh, like a dream coma that she goes through after killing herself, which is kind of this... After killing herself. After killing herself, So yeah. you see it as sort of like a afterlife kind of a thing. Yeah, kind of. I mean, like it's... Like an enter the void. It's something kinda. that I, I'd thought about, you know, on and off throughout my life, but then it was sort of like... Uh, um, you know, at, at one point in Waking Life, it's really discussed, like, this idea that we go into a prolonged dream uh, after we die, and the dream could be good or bad, and we have no way of controlling that. Um, I mean, it could be just, again, manifestations of, you know, the id and superego and ego, but I, I, I see it more as, like, uh, you know, this portrayal of regret and guilt, but... At some, at some point, especially during the Club Silencio sequence, it really becomes very emotionally uh involving for me i mean it's it it doesn't really like lead up to that but i just i certainly think that this is a movie that um is is about uh that sort of um dream state that she falls into i don't really think that uh, what happens and it's not about dreams but it i agree that the last 20 minutes is what really happened okay so you think Naomi Watts' character puts out a hit on her ex-girlfriend or whatever yeah. and then After losing what her. most of the film is is her guilt mm-hmm. uh, over her decision or just and, like also and how everything went down how she sort of idealizes you know okay. this other version of what she would have wanted to yes. happen okay all right cool i'm i agree with you i i this is a film that i've seen a couple times and i never had any kind of interpretation about it at all i just could not it was completely opaque to me i could not figure out i agree uh, film, First time. film film crit hulk wrote a very good article talking um oh yeah talking about he went step by step through every event in the movie, and he. What I liked about it was it's not just this is a symbol for this, and therefore this. What he talked about why it is affected. Like so, if you look, yeah, that's how Google, I feel about this movie. If you now. Google film crit Hulk Mulholland Drive, you'll find that. I so that's pretty much what my interpretation is. Mm-hmm. It's just his. Inter- it makes sense to me. Um, I also think that it is. Uh, it's about a woman who came to Hollywood with big dreams. And the dreams died, and then she was so despondent uh, over being broken up with by this star that she put out a hit on her. Yeah. And then that most what we see is sort of her dealing with the guilt and her trying to displace it, and uh, and and it's sort of just coming back to her uh, almost almost uh, Inception style, where the dream starts collapsing towards the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Nat. How do you? What do you? What's your interpretation? Of that? I'm pretty much down for that. I think like the first part of it is kind of a masturbatory fantasy, um, like Jim said, like, yeah. very idealized, and then um, and then the guilt sort of seeps in toward the end there, um, and then like the last twenty minutes or so um, that uh, that is kind of real life. Although I don't think it quite matters 
Um, I think you can enjoy the film without having that sort of interpretation, but I think we'll probably get into that. There are some spots where you know, that may matter, but yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with you, too. All right, cool. And Zach? I don't agree with any of you. <laughs> oh! It wouldn't be interesting if you did. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I at one time in my life, I did agree with all of you. Um, I think... The problem that I have with it being a dream is that if it is Betty or Diane's dream, um, everything would have to then, she would have to be aware of everything that was happening, correct? It would have to be in some way from her perspective. And there's also this whole thing, if we want to get into like psychology, this idea that... Uh, you know, you cannot create a person you've never seen in your life in your mind. Like every face that you see in your brain is a face that you've already previous seen at one point or another. Yeah. And my problem with the idea that it's, you know, Betty's fantasy or whatever is that there's too many things that happen in that first two hours of the film that Betty has no, there's no reason Betty is not involved in anything that's happening there. It's not from her perspective. There's no way that she would know what's going on with the cowboy and Adam Kesher or the hitman shooting the woman in the butt and saying, you know, something bit me bad or, or the fact that, you know, her supposed grandparents are sitting in a limo maniacally laughing. Like what, what, what is that about in her dream? What would that make sense? Or the people in Winkies having the conversation. I mean, I've, I've read film cult crit Hulk's piece which I think is very good, and it makes a very strong argument for that. I think, though, he does uh, choose to ignore some very important things. To me, the film is, and this is going to probably be a little goofy, but it's it has to do more with the fact that there is a puppet master controlling all of these events, and that they are the ones that are causing these shifts and changes in the realities and things like that. So that is the most basic. So what is the uh, – OK. So if that's how you read – like obviously the way we read it is, oh, the film is about how we look at our past events and how we piece them together in our subconscious and it uses dream logic and it's about that emotion. Like, f- so that's thematically what it's about. That's textually what it's about. That's subtextually what it's about. Uh, if if this film for you is about – a if is, is textually about a puppet master controlling all events – what is that? What does then Mulholland Drive say to you? What is it talking? What is it actually saying? Well, I mean, I think that that explains the the structure of the film, but I still believe that the film is essentially about lost love. Yeah, and I think Club Silencio is really the the moment in the film that I think is what ultimately is is the movie. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, it's but it's. I, I just knowing the kind of filmmaker that David Lynch is, and and even listening to him talk, uh, honestly, if the first two hours of the film were just a dream, why would I care then? Why would I? Why would I? Why would? I, why should I care? By the because, time I, well, well, the, the I, end. I think the answer to that question is kind of is easy. The answer to that is you care because it says something about a character. It's a different way of introducing a character and where the character stands and how the character feels about certain sets of people and w- what the character's history is. It's yeah, what you, you care is, is exploring. For- he uses the dream to bring us like closer to her psyche and 
I mean, it's. I guess it's debatable because I understand your point about like why do we see the pers- you know why do we get involved in these scenes I, that I don't wanna, involve. I want to say really quick. A lot of the way I view this film and why I don't think it's a masterpiece. I think it's pretty good and I think it's very impressive because I think the history of the film is, which we should say, is it was a pilot that he yeah. shot for ABC. It was a like a hour and a half long sort of pilot. Um, People say two hours, but I think that's that can be uh, misleading because it, it would have taken up a two-hour time block. But with commercials, the actual running time of the pilot's only about an hour and a half. Well, Lynch uh, says that it was two hundred and five minutes, mm-hmm. and he that he was trying to get a three-hour time block, and they forced him to cut it down to eighty-eight minutes. Yeah, so oh, wow. he just went in and just chopped the hell out of it. Oh yeah, and so uh, a lot of what informs how I view this movie is that the local video store uh, sort of near where me and actually probably even closer to Jim live is called Odd Obsessions and they had a bootleg of the original pilot or at least the pilot that he ended up the 88 minute sort of pilot he ended up submitting. Um, so this is a film that is a feature film that is that was a challenge that was how can I make a feature film out of this thing that is supposed to set up a larger serialized story. Um, and to that extent, I think there is a lot of detritus. There's a lot of scenes that are just, they're in there because they have to be in there. Uh, you the know. hitman and the cowboy. The hitman, I think, especially the cowboy. I think a cowboy showing up and saying, if you, like they could have had anyone, you know, telling Adam, the director what to do. Mm-hmm. But uh, him saying, if you see me one more time, you have done good. If you see me two more times, you've done bad. That is a really compelling thing to thread into a TV show that's sure, going to be airing sure. every week, and you're like, "Oh shit, we just <clears throat> saw him again!" And then, like every time you see the cowboy in that show, people will be freaking out. And then, like, "Oh, we saw him three times. What does that even mean?" Like, well, that's just, a really effective. But if you know that whether or not you're going to see him two more times is going to be answered in the next two hours, it's actually like really dumb. Well, even with the ominousness of the light just coming on for no reason, or like who's behind that? But uh, yeah, for, getting back to your um, your point earlier, Zach. At least for me, what I really enjoy about the first part of the movie is that. There are really entertaining vignettes, um, and you know, if you listen to an interview with David Lynch, give him about five minutes, he'll start talking about ideas and how he likes to just come up with right. these ideas and then string them together. And well, that's I, why yeah, I ultimately spot, think it, yeah. the interpretation of the film is really irrelevant, and that's yeah. why I agree with you and what you were saying earlier. I mean, I don't, I don't try to solve the puzzle that is Mulholland Drive because to me, that's not the intent of it. Yeah, you shouldn't look for logic. But, sort but of. That, that, I think, is kind of what's really interesting, though, is that even in sort of these dream sequences, you see the characters trying to struggle to understand it as well. Mm-hmm. And I find that really compelling. Like, you know, you take the uh, the, sweet, the guy at the diner who, you know, fears the whatever the hell it is behind the dumpster. And, you know, it's just, it's a really effective scene. And it's still somewhat surreal because you don't expect it. And yet, just the way he shoots it, it's full of suspense. And then when yeah. the guy finally shows up, it's terrifying. And it could be anything. It could be like I, Mickey Mouse or anything. Yeah, and I, I, I would, I mean, obviously this comes down to personal preference, what, it, what individual scenes you find compelling. I would say that without an interpretation of what the events of the film means, I would, ha- I would hate this. And I, in fact, did hate this movie a lot more than I do now. Because I think there's a lot of it. Like, I think that the... That, uh, you know the Billy Ray Cyrus sort of him coming home and discovering. <laughs> I, I think that scene's way too long and not that funny. I think that the hitman scene goes on forever. I think like there's a lot in this. I think that the 
I like the scene in the boardroom with the, uh, with oh, the yeah. you know Dan Hedja and espresso. and uh, yeah the espresso and all that. I like that, but I think that goes on too. Like I think those are things that are effect that uh, in one context, which is a pilot for a television show, would be effective. Um, but on because they are setting up a world and setting up characters that we're going to be learning more about. But I think on their own, they're not super compelling. I don't. I think. Mm. I think Betty is kind of a boring character because she's so archetypal. And I think Rita uh, slash Diane is super boring and, like because she's a cipher. Blank like, so there's that. Whole, so all those scenes with them is not great. The scene with the man behind the Winkies is amazing. You could take that on its own out of context of anything. I mean, it works better because, again, the way David Lynch p- uh, paces these things and when these things happen. Like, that scene's amazing. The audition scene is one of the sexiest craziest magic tricks ever like the fact that we like that we know that the situation is so contrived and then you go back and you watch it but you get fucking sucked into the story of these two characters who aren't even like it's not even a movie that will get made but you're just like like the acting in that scene is so good and that was a big gamble like if they didn't pull that off that would have been just stupid or whatever well he he goes through too like a lot of different genres in those vignettes and whether or not you like them like I think with the hitman that is played for comedy and I find it personally very funny Um, you get the romance you get the suspense it feels like 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 a cheap I think the the hitman scene I think the Hitman scene feels like a bad Coen Brothers knockoff. See how a lot in the '90s. I think it's. I don't think the Hitman scene is that different from something you'd see in Get Shorty or something. And to me, and to me, David Lynch. Yeah, and to me, David Lynch is just way more talented than get shorty comedy scenes like so that <laughs> I think so but I think he also is happy to sort of play around in the song no I know he's happy show. I'm not happy I want to be living up to but so, I'm just saying I'm just saying like you know for a guy who yeah. know, when he appears on screen in Twin Peaks you know he's playing the most broadly yes. comic character yeah, he, he, he I think he absolutely. likes that I think he I mean, really I know, doing that and I, even, even if you don't like the scenes I'm not saying it's any less essentially Lynchian I just don't think it's the height of his Talents, and I also just and I'm and again. I this is obviously super subjective, but if you don't have a good idea of what the story is, then all you have is is this is this compelling to me on a scene to scene basis? But I think the story, like it the is. scenes themselves or the vignettes, have their own internal story, however small it is. Like they work as short. Well, no, that's, yes. what, well, that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. If oh, there's no if, if there's no overall plot, then all you have is is this internal story compelling to me? And a lot of those vignettes are not to me. And they're kind of like to loose, me. Loose ends. Once you once you once you start viewing the film as uh, it's like a dream, and again. I, I would say, Zach, that this movie is heightened enough that you don't need a literal interpretation of dreams. You don't need mm-hmm. a literal... Uh, like, to me, the, the movie isn't... Okay, so a complaint I actually had about Inception, not obviously even the least of the problems with this movie, but there are scenes... Exposition. There are scenes... At the end implies that it's possible that Leonardo DiCaprio was in a dream the whole time. Um, mm-hmm. From the very start, like that's what the end implies. Okay. Could, that is possible. You don't you have to agree or disagree, but that is that's why they don't show the top spinning or not. Like that's why they do. Most boring dream ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, my point is there are scenes where he's not in it, and that. But to me, that movie is all about super logic. This is about logic, and here are the rules, and here mm-hmm. are the here's the setup, and here's the structure. And to me, a David Lynch movie, it doesn't necessarily have to follow that. I think a David Lynch movie, sure, people who she never and who are you to say that the people who uh, like that, Dan Hedya in the in the boardroom isn't like a bad gym teacher she had in high school or whatever. Like, yeah. like we're not giving you enough information to know that she hadn't seen the faces. Um, to me, I think the movie 
And here's my initial complaint, or this is a complaint I've had like the first, I think I've, I've seen the movie, if you include the pilot, I watched four times, uh, without, with the pilots five times. First, like three times I saw it, the fact that the fact that the code, the sort of the legend to decoding what the meaning of everything that happened is at the end and not in the beginning, it, it, was, it drove me up the wall because you don't know what information is vital and what isn't. And honestly, because mm-hmm. it's a, originally shot as a pilot for a TV show, there's a lot of discursive stuff, a lot of stuff oh, of that's not vital. Like uh, the, the guy, the dwarf uh, from Twin Peaks. Michael who, Anderson. Yeah. Michael, there we go. His character has no, like, there's no purpose for his character in this movie. Like, they show him once, and then, like, the the whole the whole story of people pursuing her and all these people pulling the strings just drops off completely. Like, there's a lot this of... This is the girl, that stuff. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. all that stuff just vanishes. Um, and to me, it's just, these are just the problems of, oh, this was a television pilot, and... You know, like, why, why the fuck is Robert Forrester here? And, like, he has this weird stilted dialogue <laughs> with his partner. And it's like, well, because they were going to be characters. But now they're just people who show up like a sore thumb in a mood, like, who just stand out. So it, these are, like, problems I have That's, with the movie. But at the same time, the fact that you have to watch all of the story without without looking at subtext, the fact that you can watch that audition scene and just and just experience raw like raw nerve kind of crazy emotion from it and not understand what even like what even the point of it was mm-hmm. or well, even when Salencio it's like the or... most superficial sort of dialogue that they're spouting too like it, it comes off as yeah. like a soap opera but she plays yeah. it so well both of them play it so, so well so that is that's powerful on one way the first time you watch it and you have no idea what what the movie even is at this point because you don't the first time you ever see it or if in my case you only watch it every three years and you don't like the movie enough to remember all the details about it and you keep forgetting what it's about like you keep forgetting, oh, that's right. Then the last twenty minutes is a completely different thing, and you get to enjoy it that way. But then once you start looking at it as, and you know, Zach, you disagree, but the three of us are in agreement. Like once you start viewing it as someone, you know, subconscious, sort of dealing with the things they've done and stuff, and and it's their projection of what they should have done, happened and their fantasy, their fantasies and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that that scene takes on a whole different meaning, and it's a fasc- fascinating for a whole different reason. And the fact that you have to watch it through once, uh, it's all a lot. It's actually, I wouldn't be surprised if Shane Carruth got sort of the structure of Upstream Color oh. from this. Because Shane Carruth, like the first, the first part of Upstream Color, you have no idea what's going on. And then you watch it again, knowing where the film goes, and you, you just have an inherent understanding of it. Mm. Like, so, but I think like in, 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 the, in the context of this movie, you know, uh, maybe the scenes don't need to connect, I guess. Like, I mean, obviously... Well, then why aren't they short films? Why are they a movie film? Why why make a feature film at all if their scenes don't need to connect? That's my question. I think it's more of, you know, responding emotionally and... You know, the, the the if it's really like this dream, it's projections of you know herself onto other people. But I people. think the scenes absolutely have to connect, or else there's no overlying meaning. Like, well, I mean, I guess you can't you just can paste use any... the pilot as an excuse, like the fact that you know he didn't. You know, it's well, okay. And here's the other thing I want to say about Mulholland Drive because it's not one of my favorite movies. This is sort of, like I like I said, I have a love it or hate it relationship. But this is a movie that falls in between that I respect, but I'm not a huge fan of. Um, one of the things that's really fascinating about this movie is that he really pulls it off. I feel mm-hmm. like like that he's is not a, a super he's hard. He's confident with, the, the, with the, what he's doing. If, if you have the DVD set of Twin Peaks, you, um, you can see the 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 feature length version of the Twin Peaks pilot that he had to retro like he had to retrofit an ending onto that in case the the, the series didn't get picked up and mm-hmm. they'd be able to sell it to foreign markets. 
that is horrible. Like the ending and like the way that whole thing is wrapped up, it's like super tacked on and horrible and it's just the worst thing. And I think he pulled off the same thing that he wasn't able to pull off in the early 90s here and it actually it recontextualizes everything and it's really clever and it's really interesting. And to me, the most fascinating parts of watching Mulholland Drive is knowing that it was originally shot as a pilot and seeing how he recontextualized things. Cause I'm not super invested in the story. I'm not super invested in the characters. And I just like, I, there's a lot about this movie that I just am kind of apathetic about, but I am in awe of the ingenuity that he had to employ in order to retrofit these alternate meetings onto what happened. And I'm kind of in awe of all of it now. Which is surprising to me because this was the one David Lynch movie that I kind. Well, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of Inland Empire, and I know Zach, you are, but mm-hmm. I, I it's I think visually, you know, I mean, the, the, this movie, like I think you and Patrick talked about on Facebook, how it it looks more like a TV pilot. Yeah, you compare this to Elephant Man or Blue yeah. Velvet or Eraserhead and stuff like like, or even Wild at Heart. Like it's the best looking TV pilot. Ever. Yeah, it's sure. the best looking TV pilot you've ever seen, but it's probably in the lower ranks of Lynch movies you've seen. Yeah. Like, did, have any of you ever seen it in a theater? Yes. Okay. Because I mean, I, where I work, I have a projector and a, and a big screen. <clears throat> I essentially watch all of these movies, you know, ten feet away, and I, I think that this is this film's gorgeous looking, and it aesthetically is very similar to Lost Highway. And to me, it's it is the it's David Lynch refining his aesthetic to absolute like perfection, and refining the themes of Lost Highway too. I think oh, definitely. Yeah. I I would definitely hundred percent disagree. I think no 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 no. I'm with the with the aesthetic part. Oh, okay. I'm, there's a connection okay. between Lost Highway and the themes of Lost Highway and the themes of this for sure. But I think that there's no chance in hell this movie looks or sounds as good as Blue Velvet or Eraserhead, and that's just. Yeah. And that, and it's not a knock against David Lynch. It's not like, oh, he's just fall asleep on the job. It's hey, he's shooting a television pilot. Mm-hmm. It didn't need to. The Twin Peaks pilot is, I think, I honestly feel Twin Peaks pilot is the greatest television pilot ever made. Um, and I, if you got, and if you have disagreements, uh, Directors Club Podcast at Gmail dot com. I'd love to hear uh, what you think the best television pilot ever made is. But like to me, that's an amazing. And there's a lot of great filmmaking, but it it doesn't look as good as Blue mm-hmm. Velvet. Like it's like very few feature films look as good as Blue Velvet, let alone television pilots. And I, to yeah. me, Mulholland Drive just looks like it was shot for television. And it's not a refining of his aesthetic. It's a compromise of aesthetic based on the medium. Going back to an earlier point that you made, Patrick, um, you said that uh, the whole idea of mystery or some puppet master was kind of broken for you when you have the image of Michael J. Anderson in the chair. No, no, I, I, I said that he, it's, I said it's broken for me when it just, when that just falls off. When after the point, like we see the hitman and we see the director uh, the, dealing with the cowboy, and then we never deal with any of it again. The, at no point are they, are they trying to investigate more, and then like more people start showing. Like it's just, they, you don't like. It, there, at a certain point, it's building a very typical kind of thriller structure of. There's a lost woman, and these people are looking for her, and they're getting closer and okay. closer. And then at a certain point, it drops. I was off. taking it's not. I was taking it as being like your reaction mm-hmm. to that was that there wasn't, and yeah, it drops off the moment. It's it, after that, the that, club. that that thread does cut out. Then that's yeah. what you're saying. It, yeah, and it probably wouldn't have cut out if it was a series. Again, maybe just the fact that uh, I'm one of the few people. Like, apparently, it's hard to even find a torrent of. The original pilot. If you, by the way, if you guys want to watch the pilot, just watch the first, watch Twin Peaks up until 
uh, until Rita... Uh, Mulholland Drive. Drive. Mulholland Drive. There we go. If you want to see the pilot of Mulholland Drive, just uh, like remove the Winkies scene, um, and uh, and then um, put in uh, a scene that happens later with the Hitman. Uh, I can't remember which was, but and then just um, and then just like stop watching after she dyes her hair. That's the pilot. Like but that's the best part. No, no, absolutely. No, <laughs> what I'm saying is yeah. the structure of the pilot. It was like I was expecting it to be. In a, in a way, it was illuminating, but it was also you. If you watch Mulholland Drive, you can pretty much guess at what point it was a TV show and yes. what point it wasn't. You know, like there's no angry masturbating. For scene. me, for me, maybe just because I did see it and I do just, I, I do just sort of have a better idea of how it was even put together. Like mm. that dominates how I view it, and that and that's not necessarily the best, you know, objective, critical way to view a work of art is to take into account its history and everything. But that's just. I can't see it as anything other than a really clever and interesting and, for the most part, successful attempt at uh, at making a feature film out of a pilot. Yeah. So if you don't feel that that, mm. that, uh, um, that it quite works or is just like, you know, these desolate threads that, that come from a pilot, though, like you could say also in response to that, you know, why did he refuse to include chapter breaks in the DVD release and say that it was intended to be watched all the way through? I think it was just something that he heard of at that time, and he didn't before. Like it was just like, oh, he, he does that with a, he's yeah, done that with, with a strange story other, too. You know, he doesn't believe in chapter breaks, but he has. Um, I think that's just succumb, the best. succumb to them. I mean, you you've heard him rant about people watching movies on cell phones. You every one of his like DVDs that he's released that wasn't released by a studio. It has something in order for you to adjust. You know the picture of your TV to make it see it the best. I think that's just him wanting people to watch the movie the best way possible. I don't think it's necessarily a clue as to. Uh, how to interpret the movie, and he wants everybody to meditate. Yeah, and he, and he wants to tell LA their local LA their weather. Uh, oh. Do you know that he's, oh, he's for call bucks a month? Yeah, he called. In, no, he called into he called into radio stations for a while in LA, that's and he funny. would just give them the weather report for ten seconds. Yeah, that's something he did. Mm. Yeah, David Lynch, interesting guy, very experimental. <laughs> turns out, turns out, an experimental filmmaker likes to experiment with different things. He does. What a shock! Yeah. Any final thoughts on Mulholland Drive? Yeah. Uh, yeah, is there anything that you guys feel like wasn't covered or something you love about the film that... I love all of it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do, too, now. I do, too, now, and I'm, I'm actually very grateful for all the rewatches, because... Can I ask Can I ask you a real quick question? Do you think the... Like... Do you think the lesbian stuff is maybe a little just like, all right, we get it. Too hot? Not, <laughs> not necessarily even too, but it's just shot like Skinamax. Like at I a certain. Think I love you. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, it's not that. I don't. Not even. Not the bed scene, but like oh, the. Okay. But like the. I, may, I think it might just. I might be mostly reacting to that. Wow. Kind of music. <laughs> the whole last 20 minutes has some weird music choices. You're just disturbed by Naomi Watts' nipples. No, that, that's they why. That's, that's why I don't like 21 Grams. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm fine. There's like a really extreme close up of them in that movie. It's nuts. Yeah, no, no, but I, I don't know. Like, I just thought David Lynch was above that sort of thing. And then I get that kind of vibe from this movie. And I was wondering if that's just me um, being too sensitive and being overreactive or if anyone else got that vibe where he's maybe getting a little off on the like lesbian sex scene. I think it's fair to say that he can get off to it. I mean, uh, after just watching like the documentary crumb, you know, and knowing that Robert crumb masturbates to his own images. Like I think Lynch Whoa. does kind of want to convey a little sense of voyeurism mm-hmm. there. I mean, we've already talked on that and but, that whole theme in blue velvet. But, yeah. But the thing in blue velvet is like, 
the whole part is that he's subverting it. He's setting up a sexual fantasy to subvert it. Yeah. And but he said if, that he's really interested in the whole idea of voyeurism yeah. as well. No, but sure. that's an idea. Like, okay, I got, here's a bigger point. If the scene is about the characters, it would be shot one way. And if the scene is about uh, people catching it late at night on HBO and having masturbatory material, that's, then it's shot a different way. Well, and to me, mm-hmm. it's somewhere in between. If we're taking it as, a, as an interpretation, like we all said at the beginning of this, that it is a, like a fantasy. You but know, that's after sense. she wakes yeah. up. I'm talking not about the sex scene. The sex scene is before No, I'm not talking about up. in the bed. I'm talking about when she's sort of going through her memories, when she sees the blue key on the, oh, on oh, the oh, coffee okay. table. I that thought, scene I thought we were still on the sex scene then. No, it's, yeah, that's, I, think the, I think the first sex scene is actually very like beautiful and character-driven. and yeah, like, yeah. I don't think that is too... I mean, it's kind of that scene is shown away. It's almost irrelevant that yeah. they're lesbians. Yeah. It's yeah, just a love scene. Mm-hmm. And again, this, I, that's why I'm asking you guys. because I think Bound is far more... HBO softcore that I mean well the, with, you would think so Wachowski's but then one of them touch. turns into a one yeah like, oh, yeah, like that's, that's the thing about that movie is that they also they had so much respect about that that they got they like had a consultant on like okay right, right, how do yeah. lesbians actually have sex because we're two people who have not had lesbian sex so like <laughs> to me that's one of the interesting things about Bound is that yeah. is that for its notoriety as being the movie where uh, Gina Gershon fingers Jennifer Tilly, like it is actually mostly about the characters. Um, but yeah. uh, I don't know. That's just that was just a, like a last thought I had. Mm-hmm. Was it seemed weird for Lynch because it just it doesn't seem like the sort of thing Lynch would normally do. Um, I well, know. I mean, he does really sort of uh, you know not necessarily exploitive, but just seedy sex in Lost Highway. That's kind of you know, questionable with its intentions, but I think much oh, like man. Mulholland Drive... Are you going to talk about Lost Highway now? <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool, because I... I'm sorry, go ahead. We're just, <laughs> I just, I just want to make sure that everyone knew that we're transitioning into... Yeah, I never, yeah, like, spell out. It's interesting to think the sex is very seedy in Lost Highway. Well, it's... It, um, I mean, part... Like, I, the first... You know, uh, the first sex scene no. I think is incredible. No, I agree. I, I think it is really <laughs> that whole incredible. forty minutes. That's I mean, that's the best part of the film. Yeah, in my opinion. Um, well, I mean, I'm just talking more about like the the, the second half and you know the porn and uh, the, oh, the sex the scenes in the motel. Romantic. Yeah, it, it's just ugh. it's like I mean, it's not really erotic. It's I think the the interesting thing about Lost Highway is. Um, the first time I saw it, I kind of loved it, but I didn't know why. I just thought, like, oh, you know, this is just a really cool head trip of a movie that I may not be able to understand, but I still dig it. Uh, and it is, again, kind of messy in, 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 in all the right ways for me. And I think, like, uh, it came out at a time where I was, like, really getting into these more surreal kind of movies and hadn't... I think at the time I only seen Blue Velvet, and then I saw this, and I just... Uh, really responded to it as like this, you know, nightmarish portrayal of like sexual insecurity and sexual inadequacy. And, you know, at one point we hear, you know, that Bill Pullman's character wants to remember things his own way, not exactly how they happened. And so, mm-hmm. like, I thought like focusing on that was, you know, you know, maybe kind of obvious, but I still think really interesting. Um, and, you know, reading up on the whole disassociative psychogenic fuse, fugue state that he was trying to um, capture visually was also really interesting. But I actually think that the, um, well, much like Mulholland Drive, I think Bill Pullman is reimagining how he would wanted things to be in the second half. Because I think that the the, the fugue... I, I, I'm kind of with you. Like, yeah. I view it almost as if he's tricking himself 
into... while while on death row. I think like I don't think he literally becomes uh, Balthazar Getty. I think that so the, he he just has fantasies about uh, Robert Logia being mad at other drivers. Robert Logia being like, that to him is like how he wished his life would have. Robert worked. Logia being the id. Yeah, <laughs> and I think like it's it's crazy like because the very last shot is him like almost catching on fire in a way like he, he seems like he's about to explode so I think that's like him actually being on, on death row um, and then the rest of it is mostly just like again idealizing you know and the idea like cause you in know my ideal version of Lost Highway they didn't cast Baldazar Getty I know that to I, me, that's a big problem single, for me <laughs> single handedly sinks the film I really like like finding a videotape of like all of that and like uh, there was stuff with Robert Blake at the party when yes. he like hands on the phone like all that sounds amazing, amazing. Yeah. but Baldazar Getty is single handedly one of the worst actors I've ever seen and every scene with him is just a black hole of charisma then him and Giovanni Ribisi show up at one point oh, together yeah, it's the uh, yeah exactly like it is the like I like it just sucks the life out of the movie yeah, for me it doesn't and, it, and I cannot deal with it uh, like really though I will say Lost Highway is the one film that I have seen in theaters um and Great sound design in this fucking movie. All, all, like I said, most I think most Lynch, mo- yeah. Lynch movies, like he brings, he like he he'll Accentuates. send out. Well, no, he'll send out instructions to the projectionist and say, "All right, put it a little louder than you would normally. It's mm-hmm. okay. I said it's fine." You know, yeah, and like two dBs or something. Yeah, yeah, like like, and you don't, you know, I I imagine if I saw Wild at Heart in theater, I would at least have an appreciation for the visceralness of it because. Those I think there are similar moments as the cigarettes, like sort of lighting, like that that super sort of sound, yeah. like that that are I think there are similar moments to that in Lost Highway that are just like super physical when you feel them in a theater. Oh yeah, um, with that with those that kind of speaker system on a giant screen. Uh, obviously, David Lynch. I don't know if he's making films for theaters anymore. It's he's sort of just going his own route. I'm sure he'll come back around to it eventually. But uh, he's definitely a director who I will every time uh, one of his movies is in theaters, I'll probably try to see it unless it's. I think what's interesting to me about Lost Highway is like you know the characters creating this illusory universe where he can work out his troubles by venting in a way, Mm -hmm. and I think that's what Lynch does with a lot of his movies is just creating his own you know uh, um, universe to like. I mean, I don't know if he's necessarily like you know. Oh, I have this. Uh, you know, internalized issue that I need to work out through my films. Well, that's the, that's the whole practice of surreality, right? It's that you can address things that you yeah. can address by being strictly realistic. Mm-hmm. It's it, the but he's more, also a painter. I mean, he's yeah. really like. Fo- well, I'm like, just saying, the, like it, it ties into his art movement. Yeah. Like it, tar- it ties into that. Like that's just how he operates. That's his mo. It's not just Lynch's mo. That's sort of that's the tradition he draws on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, and like he did all the furniture for this movie. Like he, he did really, all the furniture in Lost Highway. Yeah, he, he built all uh, the furniture. The the actual houses that they're in at the beginning is his house. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, but yeah, like I, I saw the documentary Pretty as a Picture, um, you know, and it talked a lot about mostly Lost Highway and the filming process behind it. And it was mostly uh, David Lynch putting together chairs. <laughs> Part of it, like <laughs> like hammering bookcases and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it's pretty good. I mean, it, it, I think it. I wish it focused more on his other films too. But I, I, do you think maybe he was too busy putting together a coffee table to be there the the day they decided to cast, cast Balzar Getty, and that was just like something he delegated out, and they just came back with Balzar Getty, and he's like, "Well, yeah. I got to work with what I got, don't I?" Like, <laughs> 
he doesn't ruin the movie for me. I mean, he's terrible, I yeah. think, but... What else has Balthazar Getty done? Anything? Young Guns? or No. Uh, what the... F- I don't know. City Slickers 2, Legend of Curly Gold? <laughs> no, I don't know. Bad <laughs> I, I, I know he's been in some shit that I've seen. I just can't think of it. Uh-huh. He's very forgettable. Is he related to Estelle Getty? Uh, mm, no. no. He's related to... Uh, I was going to try to say, there's no one else with the name of Balthazar. I was just trying to find some way to work in a stop or my mother will shoot a in there. But. Okay, let's move on to another Lynch film. Who wants to go? Uh, Zach, how about you? Um, well, I'll talk about Firewalk with me. Ooh, since ooh. Firewalk with me is my favorite Lynch film. And probably the most maligned. Yeah. Yes, and it's my favorite film, period. <laughs> like, uh... There is nothing in the history of cinema, even though I know I'm being hyperbolic, that is more beautiful to me than the close-up of Cheryl Lee as Laura Palmer. There's just nothing that beats it for me. I, I, I don't know what it is. It's Firewalk with me, in my opinion, is the most gorgeous film I've ever seen. The cinematography is outrageous. And also, I... <laughs> I'm a little... I've never quite understood why it was so maligned. I've never read that much into it. I mean, I can see how people would be infuriated with the fact that it is so dissimilar to the TV series. Um, But, man, just looking at it as a a portrait of a woman that is just under... just the worst possible thing that could ever happen to someone. And Cheryl Lee is so incredible. I mean, she gives an, just an operatic performance. I think it's ridiculous that she was not recognized the year that the film came out. Mm-hmm. And just, uh, you know, it's probably his bleakest portrayal of that sort of small-town American lifestyle. But uh, it's so just emotionally devastating to me and I just Laura Palmer is my favorite character of any David Lynch character and I just love her complexity how she can be this completely vulnerable girl but yet be so manipulative and in such control in other moments there's just something so fascinating about her Um, and it's too it's too bad that the film was maligned because they clearly set things up that could have gone on as sequels and I actually think um he brings the mythology back to a more manageable state. Whereas mm-hmm. I think with the TV series, once Lynch kind of left, they took Bob and some of these other things into more fantastical directions than I think he ever intended. And he really brings Bob back into being more about the inner demon inside, inside Leland rather than this demon this that can just kind of, kind of body force. hop. Yeah, And uh, I think that that's really important. Yeah, I, I, I would. I'm. I own this film, and I'd really be interested to see it again because the context in which I saw it was the first time I finished Twin Peaks, and I don't like the ending of Twin Peaks. Some people go, "Oh, it sucks," but then the last episode is great. I hate the last episode of Twin Peaks as well. I think oh, you hate like the entire episode, uh, or just the the ending because no, I hate I hate the enti- I think oh I hate I hate oh, what it's a part of. I hate that whole arc. I hate mm-hmm. the whole uh, Windermere arc. I think. Again, I think what happens is Lynch, you know, like 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 I was talking about with Blue Velvet. There's parts where he just leaves a mystery unanswered, and there's a lot of weird stuff in the first half of Twin Peaks that is just sort of 
off in the sidelines and it's not exactly answered and it's not exactly explored. It's, you just know it's there linger. Like the log lady is the perfect example. You know, like what the hell is that? It's just this weird sort of evocative kind of thing. And I think the whole like last arc of twin peaks is about explicitly trying to discover what it's all about. And to me that that's just the dumbest, like that's the least interesting direction they could have gone. Um, so, but anyway, what I'm trying to say is, I, I saw it in the context of watching the series and loving all the characters, and but just just loving the series for what it was tonally and loving the series for what it was, which is a compromise of David Lynch. It's, it's David Lynch compromising and bringing a lot of his skill um, and themes, but it's also him compromising and just making an actual like television show and not going uh, like full David Lynch and full crazy. Like there's just a lot of conventional kind of storytelling in that as well. There's a lot of conventional mystery uh, as well as the more surreal stuff. So I love that show. In fact, that's what I want to talk yeah, about. But me too. Fire Walk With Me, I watched definitely not in the context of a David Lynch movie. I definitely watched it in the context of the final note on the Twin Peaks, and I just hated it. So I would be interested to go back and watch it again maybe now that I have a better understanding of who David Lynch is as a director and with less expectations as how it tells the story or fills in the story or whatever of Laura Palmer, I think I might be able to appreciate it more. I did upon a rewatch. I I wouldn't say it's a masterpiece. I think some scenes do go on too long. And I, I, I think that there's a lot of, again, to admire based on his aesthetic and his approach to filmmaking. And, uh, I, and I certainly agree wholeheartedly with Zach about Shirley's performance, especially in this and like the range she has, like kind of oh. going from like a seductress and back to being sweet and innocent and, you know, just some of the revelations that, you know, obviously we've all, you know, discovered over time. And, like, her trauma is so, like, beautifully realized in this, of course, really twisted way that only Lynch can capture. But, like, I still, like, I, I could see why people would negatively respond to This is it. another movie like Mulholland Drive where I didn't, Mulholland Drive I've seen multiple times. This I've only seen the one time where I have no idea what the first half has to do with, or what the first yeah. segment has to do with the second. And I, just, I think it's funny. <laughs> like I found uh, myself laughing. There's a, a lot. lot this actually, I was, able, I was, well, able, I think the first half is what I was getting at with talking about if they had planned to do more films, which I think they uh, did. I mean, yeah. that, I think that's where the David Bowie thing comes in. I mean, I know that right. there was like another half hour, shot with David Bowie of footage that they just ended up cutting out of the film. But I think a lot of those things are they're setting up for potentially later material hmm. that they just never got around to. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, there's a lot of Lynch humor that I do not find funny at all. I think there's some of that in straight story. I didn't get to finish. I didn't finish straight story, but something about the depiction of Sissy Spakes's character just felt really gross to me. Like, where she's just like wacky disabled person, huh? I never at all had ever thought of yeah. that at all while watching Straight Story. I yeah, like just the way she speaks. Like it just it feels like it's not being played. It's not giving insight in a lot of scenes. It's just being played for comedy to me. Well, mm-hmm. but it seems like she's not quite aware of it. But he's like, yeah, just leave that. I, part I, in. I, I'm speaking as someone who didn't finish the movie, so maybe. Yeah, it's interesting because I never laugh at anything that is going on with her. I don't find any of that funny. I mean, I think the whole interaction with the the shopping, the woman at the grocery store is supposed to be like. Yeah, but I don't. Where she's like, that that that's sausage. I don't think that that's because uh, she's disabled. What, what's funny about that? Like, she's just name. Like, all she's saying. Oh, I mean, it's the All right, well, that's dumb. That's. I mean, 
that was a dumb thing for me to say because well we're not we're not humor, making fun of mentally no, 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 no. what I'm saying is what I'm saying is that's a dumb thing for me to say because <laughs> humor is so subjective that it's entirely possible that a scene I don't find funny at all and that the only thing I think that could be funny about it is that someone's making fun of a mentally challenged person someone else could see it and go no that's fun completely outside of the fact that she's disabled but, and but I, I I do agree that does seem like a very affected. Uh, kind of way I the feel the same way about um, about Audrey's brother in Twin Peaks. Easily, I'm glad he is sort of phased out of that show. The disabled guy who Laura like read to, who like wears the Indian headdress. Mm-hmm. Like to me, that's just like wow. And I and uh, and also um, uh, Crispin Glover in Wild at Heart. Like I feel like sometimes that character pops up where it's just like, oh, Crispin Glover in Wild Heart is maybe the worst part of any David Lynch movie I've ever seen. I hate that so much. The the weird thing about it is why it's it's still there because um, on the lime green box set there's like an hour and a half of deleted scenes from Wild at Heart and there's stuff that integrates Crispin Glover more into Lula Lula's narrative that makes it a little more justified while he's still there but they cut those bits out and they just keep in the kind of random I'm making my lunch cockroaches in my pants stuff which has no context to the rest of the film whereas there's there's actual (laughs) stuff that gets involved with he's the one that impregnated her and that's why she had to get in the get the abortion and he actually they run into him later on in the film in present time and that's just all removed so it doesn't make any sense why keep why they kept any of it in there yeah i kind of do that i feel that way about the cowboy Oh, yeah, I already talked about the Cowboy yeah. and Mohandra. There's some things Mohandra that I'm like, eh, you should, probably should have not kept that in the future film. But. I think Trey's story is really sweet. It's like, you know, a very warm and sentimental film. And it just, I maybe it's just because it's so different than anything he does that I automatically am assuming that there's some ulterior motive. I know uh, you're, yeah, you're shaking your head, but you can't automatically assume there isn't. Like, why? Yeah, what, I, what, I, I don't get him, that feeling what, when I'm watching it, though. Quite, and again, I'm, I haven't seen the film. I've only seen the first 30 minutes. So I'm not speaking from any kind of educated. Okay. But, like, to me, there's nothing interesting about it except that people are doing weird things. And isn't it weird that these country bumpkins are doing weird things? Re, you know, uh, yeah, that's make not, amends. That's not inherently interesting. Like, that's not a that's not a inherently good story as someone riding a lawnmower on a highway. Like, that is just... He runs into very interesting people along the way. He makes, like, you know, these momentary connections. I th- and I think it's an examination of someone's mortality. I that, mean, too. I could see yeah, that. And you know he's gonna. He knows that he doesn't have very long, so he might as well go make amends with his brother. And so he might as well take the slowest way possible to his brother. Yeah, we had. Yeah, I mean, he had no other way to do it. There's a million other ways to travel across America. He literally chose the slow. What do you mean he had no other way to do it? He's doing it as like a test of. Did they say is this in a world where there's no airplanes or buses or trains? Like. Not where they are. <laughs> yeah. There's no, there's none of those in Kansas. He had to ride a lawnmower. No, it just seems affected, and it just seems, mm. and it seems. But it's to true. Me, it really happens. Yeah, that's, that's my point. My whole point is the whole reason that story is interesting. It's because someone was crazy, and someone did something <laughs> crazy. Not that someone did something that anyone in that emotional state would do. The mm. whole point of that story is you want to hear a story about something crazy someone did once for no reason. Like that's what makes that story. Like, and again, I haven't seen the f- full movie, but to me. Like, the fact that he was attracted to that true story, like, you know, I don't know. Obviously, David Lynch is the master of looking at even things he had made before, such as Mulholland Drive, and then finding new mm-hmm. ways. So that's that that's a flaw on my part by saying, oh, clearly he's only... But I'm just saying, that's the vibe I got from the first 30 minutes. Right. And, but, and, I was, and the whole point I was tying it into was that it's not 
isolated. The whole Crispin Glover thing and the whole uh, the whole disabled kid in the Indian headdress in Twin Peaks is all like that sort of thing to me. I think sometimes and just and just the way he uses uh, like dwarves as just like. It's just like, oh, weird. Like, I think, like, he just kind of... <laughs> think of Peter Dinklage yeah, in Living in no, Oblivion. Peter Dinklage in Living in Oblivion is a 100% reaction to David Lynch. Like, to me, <laughs> like, just the way he kind of will dehumanize dork. Like, d- dorks. dorks. <laughs> yeah, he dehumanizes dorks. And I identify as a nerd. Um, no, like, he'll, I doubt it, he'll just... It's sort of dehumanizing and that, that dwarves have to be symbols. And I think sometimes David Lynch is not necessarily... Sensitive to that? Yeah, and that's not going make him a bad filmmaker or anything that employs a bad film. I think Twin Peaks is one of the greatest shows ever. But I'm just saying, like, there's just some parts of... And I, that, to me, is the whole... Like, that, to me, was the entire entirety of Straight Story, mm-hmm. was that vibe I got from other stuff he did. Well, let's uh, wrap up pretty quick here. Um, do we have one more that we want to just touch on? Twin or? Peaks is amazing. Twin, first first three episodes of Twin Peaks are, like, the first best three episodes of any television show yeah. ever. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. You watched... Yeah. You watch the filmmaking that go like the filmmaking that goes on when everyone is discovering on different levels what has happened to Laura, mm-hmm. like just the way that information travels and the way he tells that story visually um, and non-verbally is, oh god, that's like the greatest thing I've ever seen on a television show, yeah. and that and the characters are so rich. The fact that Bobby's dad is this general who's talking about like, but he's like, look, you need to define your individuality. Like he's the super sensitive liberal general. Who's also will just fucking slap a cigarette out of his mouth. Like, like all the characters are really weird and complex. And the way that Laura is a fascinating character in that show without ever being in that show is amazing. And the picture of the town it paints and the way it weaves these kinds of things, the way that I would assume a Mulholland drive television show would have, uh, and the way it subverts itself and just individual scenes like uh, like the scene where they're all performing music together in front of the lamp and like <sighs> oh like and just anything with Bob uh, which again is David Lynch wasn't Bob a sound guy who was a happened to be he was in the shot David Lynch goes oh that's scary I can use that like David Lynch is, David Lynch is <laughs> yeah. experimental not just oh his movies have weird structures he sees happy ac- and I think that is something that's actually rare with the kind of movie he makes. Mm-hmm. I think people who make very sort of uh, more experimental, surreal kind of movies, they are very much about their vision. And the, and I think the fact that he is open to that sort of thing and he can turn a, a mistake into what is actually one of the most effective parts of that show is just like, oh, yeah, that's someone who's a masterclass director. Because yeah. not everything about directing is framing shots and editing the film and, and choosing what songs go where. Like, a lot of directing is just being there on set and be allowing things to happen and allowing uh, and taking the good things and the bad and taking what you get and being good in the editing room and being good. And so like, this is always like David Lynch, amazing director, not one of my favorites by far. There's a lot of his films. I just plain don't like, Um, but David Lynch is just astonishing talent. Um, So, Oh, for sure. Like, uh, I, I'll never look at a ceiling fan the same way. Like, I mean, just like there's, sort of, a, there's a late episode of Twin Peaks where someone drops a plate and then it just shows an extreme close up of syrup dripping yeah, off of a yeah, pancake. Yeah. It's like the creepiest a, thing ever. It's I know. so good. He's able to focus on those details and make them his, yeah, own, his yeah. own. 
He's also a director who, if you're describing a scene from one of his movies to somebody who's never seen it, it's the most fun to see their reaction. Like, <laughs> oh yeah, and then they take out the body of the Asian woman, and this guy in this denim jacket appears on the bed, and he morphs into this dancing midget, and then it cuts over to the knob on the drawer, which turns into the face of the Asian lady, starts screaming, and then it morphs, and it has its own face, and it starts screaming, and then the episode ends. Should I, uh, sh- is that the next commentary I should do? Me and my mom watch Eraserhead? <laughs> Oh, Razor Head's a masterpiece, I, by the way. Yeah. I, I should have done one when I made my grandmother watch it. Yeah? Oh, wow. Oh. What the hell is this for just 90 minutes? I know. <laughs> the, the dangerous thing in doing that, Patrick, is that your mother would be like, you cried exactly like that when you were a Yeah, kid. Well, that's, that's why That's why it would be interesting. I think it's... I mean, one of my next Mother's about, Day. There's a Mel Brooks, the Mel Brooks episode of uh, WTF with Mark Maron. Mel Brooks oh, talks about producing. So good. He talks about producing Elephant Man, and he said, and like Elephant Man was a pr- project that he sort of started, and like they were looking for a director, and they chose David Lynch because he goes, "A razor head was weird, but you knew exactly what it was about." Yes, and it's like, and that's hilarious to me because Mel Brooks isn't necessarily known as being an intellectual, and I know for a fact that like most people, the first time they watch a razor head, are like, "What the fuck was that even?" But then you go back. It's very clear. Yeah, that's that's a crazy thing. You go at least this is this was my. But I, but I think what confuses people is that David Lynch says that everyone else's interpretation is is not his own. I think David. So, I think David Lynch just like saying things. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me let me finish that. Sentence. Oh, I know. I agree with you. No, I think I think he likes saying things to keep the mystery alive, and that's why. Like he sure. gave those kind of bullshit clues about Mulholland Drive on the DVD insert or what? Like I think where so is Anne Rice? That Laura Palmer is not sitting in Club Silencio when she so clearly is. Yeah, like he. Mm. I think I think he just he wants to. He knows that the second he explains what happened, then it'll kill the magic. So he just will. He'll just play coy. Um, so and he, and you see him in interviews and stuff. And he's very, he's always very coy and he's always very, a little combative with interviewers. And so I appreciate that about him. But at the same time, don't take things he says about his own movies as, oh, this is how I should read that movie. Because uh, he's not necessarily doing it to uh, provide you with an explanation. He's maybe doing it to not provide you with an explanation. Yeah. You know, there's a, there doesn't always have to be a, you know, clear cut answer or, or logic like we brought up or closure. You know, I mean, I think leading into the uh, you know the viewer's interpretation is kind of you know I don't think there has to be about I don't analysis. think there has to be a definitive meaning no I don't think there has to be a definitive there should be something I that think you can that, grasp on but to. I think if, no I think that if you as a viewer can't give watch a film and then take meaning away from it then you as a viewer probably aren't going to take much away from it at all unless yeah. it's Iron Man three and it's just a bunch of jokes like so if you as a viewer are like the first many times I watched Mulholland Drive are like just can't if you can't take any kind of meaning away from it then you're not going to take much away from it at all and I don't think that's not necessarily a knock against David Lynch but that is saying I understand where people who say oh his movies are too confusing I don't like them are coming from I don't think, sure. that, I don't no, think I can, that's I necessarily I a bullshit statement I think that is a valid way of just saying what they're actually saying is the movie was not compelling enough without a plot that I didn't miss the plot. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Let's give our top three David Lynch movies. Okay. Uh, Jim, you go first. Number one is Blue Velvet. Number two is Mulholland Drive. And number three is Lost Highway. All right. Uh, <laughs> Zach? 
Number one, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Number two, Inland Empire. Number three, Mulholland Drive. And Nat? Number one, Mulholland Drive. Number two, Inland Empire. Number three, Ooh. probably Elephant oh. Man. Well, that's fantastic <laughs> to hear that. We didn't get to talk about Inland Empire at all. I've never seen it. so uh, And I, I I hear it has a very punishing running time, and many people just find it uh, impenetrable. So yeah. it probably, just from what I've heard about, probably won't be my favorite. But if we, I just we need we'll to, probably I do, do another David Lynch episode. I just need to rewatch it. If we do another David Lynch episode, we'll do Eraserhead and Inland Empire. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. And uh, my number one is Blue Velvet. Um, my number two is Eraserhead, and my number three is the first 11 episodes of Twin Peaks. <laughs> You're allowed that. Oh, yeah, if, and if I can't say that, then Mulholland Drive. Okay. But Mulholland Drive would be very distant third. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent, guys. Um, so let's uh, give us give some plugs for everybody here. Um, Nat, where we, can we find more of your work um, on I'm, Twitter and all that? I'm slathered all, all over the internet. Um, and you're slathered with butter right now. I'm very excited. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's after podcast stuff. It's garlic, too. You, guys <laughs> <want> <laughs> <a lot. laughs> um, uh, you can find most of my stuff at uh, Frothy Girls, all one word with a Z. There's got to be an easier way of explaining that, but uh, frothygirls.com, uh, theflickcast.com, where the long tail ends.com, and then Twitter is just N as in November, A as in Alpha, T as in Tango, underscore Elmorel. <laughs> Sounds just like it's spelled A L M I R A L L. And um, I think that's about it for Excellent. my day. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on that. It was great. Oh, my pleasure. We're going to have to have you back for my sure. pleasure. Zach. Uh, you can find me on the Film Jive podcast over at filmjive.wordpress.com, which is also on Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Zach Batanti. Also, I think you have a short film online, don't you? That's very Lynchian. Uh, on Vimeo? I, I, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> that, was thing, that was the first thing I ever shot. Okay. Well, yeah, we don't have to <laughs> and, plug it if you want, but I thought it was interesting that it's so, like, it, you when you say that uh, Firewalk it's, is your favorite and Lynch is the only filmmaker that means a lot to you I saw that short film and I'm like oh Lynch is probably the only filmmaker that means a lot to him like well what's funny about it too is all of those things were not I didn't do them on purpose <laughs> like yeah. there's a scene that involves two men in a stick of lipstick and it was something that subconsciously happened and then I went back and rewatched Blue Velvet completely forgetting oh, about that moment and yeah. then going oh shit <laughs> that is where I got that from yeah no but I've I shot that probably like three years ago, and since then I've worked very hard to try and break the the Lynch mold that is is stuck to me. That's good. So, Patrick, yeah. where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Patrick Pohl. You can find me uh, my viewing journal at Martha Marcy Nash and Young WordPress dot com. Uh, you can find me making blog posts on uh, our blog. Go ahead, uh, go to our website. Uh, I've been trying to do it at least, you know, like every two or three days. Um, recently did something about, I mean, they're very brief. They're, it's a Tumblr, but. Uh, I'm trying. I'm trying to do that. Yeah. So it hasn't been easy. But uh, I do that. Yeah. So, um, go, visit, yeah go visit me at uh, Twitter at Instant Jam. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> on your Twitter at Instant Jam. Letterboxd. Oh. What is your telegram number? Instant Jam. Oh. Hmm. You can find me in Chicago. <laughs> Where else? I think uh, directorsclubpodcast.com. You should give your phone number, too. I should. Here's yeah. my social security number. Uh-huh. And uh, send us an email, right? Yeah. Where? Directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. And write us a review. On hey, iTunes. Write us a review. Please. Write us a good review. We know you guys enjoy it. Um, um, 
So I'm taking next episode off. That's right. And uh, Patrick is going to take the uh, lead. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's looking like we're going to have Brian Talrico, who was on the Park Chan-wook episode, to join you for director Alfonso Cuarón. Which I'm very excited about. Itumama Tambien is one of my favorite all-time movies. Yeah. Are you going to do that and Children of Men? I imagine. Okay. Unless something more interesting. I don't think there's anything more interesting than those two movies. Uh, Yeah. They're both very good. Children of Men is also probably among my top 50 movies of all time. That's a great one. So... Uh, I'm excited about that. I am too. So thanks, guys, for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks for that episode. And that is all. Goodbye. Bye. A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night And just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is all right I close my eyes Then I drift away Into the magic night I softly say A silent prayer I'm going to have to hold this in my hand. Are you going to cradle, <laughs> cradle it, cradle it. Jeez, Jim, put your pants back on. Yeah, yeah. It's just like every other episode. All right. Jim, mm. are you ready? Hold on. Before, no. I, I said <laughs> You say, are you ready? And then immediately take your headphones off yeah. and get up. I should have bought some Heineken, though, too. That yeah. would have been better. No, no, no fuck that. Pat's full of ribbon. Okay. <laughs>